Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Luke Fraser, winner of the 2023 U.S. Masters. And I'm Jeremy Duvall. And I'm Rough Enough, and we're back again. This is ironic because we just recorded 20 plus hours of content at the U.S. Masters. It's always a big uh, season of harvest, eh? It absolutely is. But we wanted you to have the opportunity to let it sink in, get home and be in a comfortable spot when we have this conversation. Get the Disneyland tickets all set up. You know what I mean? So since you've won the big one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Luke, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? You know, who is Luke Frazier and where are you from? Yeah, um, I live uh, near Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. So I'm in the Pacific Northwest region. Um, you know, I've been playing uh, minis games for, for a long time. Um, I first got into it through uh, the Lord of the Rings miniatures game by Games Workshop. You know, the, the movies were out. Those minis are fantastic. It was it just really captured the, the 13-year-old imagination. Um, and then I had a pretty sort of typical uh, journey from there into 40K and then fantasy. Um, and then I had sort of a... Not, not quite a hiatus, but, you know, I dabbled in some War Machine, but really only played it in, in basements. Um, and then I was super, super into the Rune Wars miniatures game, uh, which probably, you know, tens of your listeners will have heard of. And although I will readily admit that it was absolutely rife with problems, like right from the get-go, basically, and it, they got worse over the life of it. I, I, I truly loved it. So, yeah, I, I first tried Kings of War in, I think, 2017 or 2018. It was in second edition, but it might have been before the first Clash of Kings book. Uh, and our playgroup's experience was like, well, this is fine, but it just it just wasn't delivering on the, the sort of fantasy element very well. Um, so we tried it out with uh, some expertly constructed uh, pieces of cardboard representing the bases uh, and then sort of moved on from there. And then, yeah, after uh, Rune Wars kicked the bucket, you know, we had some fantasy miniatures and wanted to use them. So gave it a try again. And um, yeah, it's it's been with it ever since it's it's really the right mix for me i was convinced for a long time that it was the right thing for everybody but i've sort of come around to the idea that it's it's the right balance of you know hobby creativity and crisp gameplay for for me in particular so it's, it's always interesting when you're talking with someone about their origin story to know sort of what was the hook that got you have you always been both a miniatures guy and a game playing guy do you like the hobby side uh, is it more the strategy that kind of gets you to those places? Or talk a little bit about what you love about miniature gaming. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I come from a more uh, competitive uh, origin, I guess you could say. Um, but I'm really growing to appreciate the hobby more and more. Um, and like I am, I am uh, sort of broadly a disorganized person. Um, and I, I have never succeeded in like you know, making a hobby just a part of my regular routine. It's always like, okay, we got three weeks until the tournament. What's going on? Um, you know, I, I played with, like, you know, the, the Trident Realm Army that I um, played at Masters, it was unpainted and being played with for almost two years. Just, you know, unprimed plastic sitting on, on bases. Um, so I, I still struggle with hobby, but I, I really like doing it. And I really, really love seeing what other people do. Like, you know, I've, I've really come around to the idea that like a, a tournament is 
as much a you know a social meetup and a hobby exhibition as it is a competitive scene. It's, it's sort of the, the the three pillars of an event, and I've, I've even started calling them events way more than tournaments because. They, they really are, right? Yeah, and like you said, there's some people who go to a tournament because they want to show off the brand new army that mm-hmm. they painted. Are mm-hmm. you know so, and that's what, when we when you talk about like that miniature game, tri- the triangle, right, or the sacred tripod. You have the sportsmanship, the strategy, the paint. You know, uh, it's cool that the bigger, especially the big events, right? It's real like a, a, a spectacle. You get you get to see some Absolutely. really crazy stuff. So talk to us a little bit more geographically, like, are you playing with a specific club or who are your normal sort of practice partners? You know, who have you been playing with up there? Yeah. So, I mean, the uh, Vancouver meta is pretty small. There's, you know, there's probably 20 of us or so within, you know, an hour and a half or whatever, um, but only maybe five or six regular players. Um, and we're sort of spread out as well. So. Like I, I don't drive most of the time, so uh, Vancouver has a pretty good public transit system, but it's only good sort of within the, the loop, really. So my, my regular opponents, we got uh, Thomas Patterson, who has been kicking my teeth in for 15 years, you know, um, and he doesn't travel that much. Um, and then Russell Romano, who was at Masters, shout out to Russ. He started playing, I guess, almost two years ago, and he's, uh, he's, really, he's really come a long way. So it's, it's great to have him along. Yeah, I got a couple, couple of the local guys. Um, one that found us through, I don't know if you guys have seen the um, Play on Tabletop series that Mantic commissioned there. It's a series of three videos. Found us through the YouTube comment section. You and Dan, right, are on that together? That's right. Yeah, me and Dan Miner. And then, of course, there's Dan Miner, who uh, hasn't played a game of King's War in over two years, I think. He finally sort of threw in the towel and decided to play a game where he could get a pickup game with a, a stranger on any given Wednesday. So, so that's sad. But um, yeah, and then uh, Vern Harper has been playing for a while. I met him last year at the U- U.S. Masters in Seattle. Oh, this is the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. Uh, but he, he lives he lives out, out uh, towards the valley. So we don't see a whole lot of him. And he's a busy guy. Like he's he's raising kids and he's running around. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's a smallish community. Um, and then, of course, we're right next to Vancouver. Well, adjacent to Vancouver Island it takes uh, usually about three hours to get either, either way. And there's a there's a ferry ride involved. So it's it's surprisingly expensive. It's it's it takes longer and it's more expensive to go to the island than to go down to Seattle. So, yeah, there's the Vancouver Island meta, which was really huge last season. Um, there were um, a handful of the competitive guys that were on the Masters team, of course. Um, Dan Wright, that is to say the British Columbia Dan Wright. Gareth, like I know his last name, and then Brian Happynook and Drew Allen, the uh, um, King's Retreat guy. A bunch of them were former um, War Machine players, so they were really into the, the competitive angle. So yeah, they played a lot that season and have sort of um, been swamped with other projects since. So the, the Island meta is in a little bit of a, a downturn, sort of hibernation period, but they've got a two-day GT in about a month that I'm heading over to, so be good to see those guys. Yeah, and then I head down to Seattle and Portland tournaments sort of whenever I can make it. So uh, Ryan Munsell, of course, is one of one of the best players in our region. Uh, he always gives me a hard game. Um, so he's, he's really tight. And then, of course, you got uh, Portland, Dan Wright, Dustin Church, uh, the McClure brothers, um, Greg Kaufman, um, a fairly new player by the name of Josh, who used to live in the Northeast, I think. He's from elsewhere. And yeah, he, he uh, just sort of showed up at one of our RGTs. He almost didn't come because he hadn't played in a while, and he ended up. I think he took best battle in that tournament. So yeah, he's he's got the skills. But 
not, not a whole lot going on locally, but uh, I, I try to go to sort of as much of the PNW as I can. If you had to distill it down, what is it about Kings of War that attracts you to it? Yeah, I mean, what really brought me in initially was the, the hobby freedom. Like I had a pile of Rune Wars minis um, that I converted over to a Vaseline army, which did not work for me. I, I cannot make cavalry work for, for the life of me. From there, like um, I've, I've got a 3D printing. I've only been into 3D printing for about two years, I guess. So maybe a little longer than that. But anyway, um, you get into some of that. Um, and the, the multi-basing is maybe the best single element of the game. Um, just how, you know, there's no individual model removal. So whatever you do on that footprint is really up to you and you can really go as wild as, as you need to. So in some respects, the, the game of Kings of War sort of clears my threshold for goodness that I can play with miniatures the way I want to sort of thing. And then, yeah, like the, 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 the specific gameplay really appeals to me. Like I, I often think of it as sort of like trading a question back and forth. Like I, I tried the Song of Ice and Fire miniatures game for a while. I like it, but it it really helped me realize that I don't love alternating activations. I thought I would. It, it seems good on paper, but something about moving your whole army and sort of presenting your threats, striking with your targets that can, and then your your opponent responding to that really really scratches the itch for me. We do have a question from Aramis Berger. He asks if you could change one thing about Kings of War, what would it be? It would probably be sort of the fundamental shooting formula. And this this is one of a number of things that Kings of War sort of inherits from its old school sort of like Warhammer Fantasy adjacent roots, where a five plus to hit is the is the default value, four plus is elite, and six plus is garbage sort of thing. And the reason I don't like that fundamentally is that any single modifier, whether it be cover or stealthy, knocks that 5 plus down to a 6 plus, which is halving the damage output. So units with a 4 plus to hit in shooting have a, a more granular progression of penalty stacking. And like Thomas, my local my local opponent, probably my most regular local opponent, really hates stealthy army-wide. Like the, the sort of core design of Night Stalkers is having stealthy army-wide means that they're a weirdly hard counter to especially 5 plus shooting. Um, whereas like as a having run Thule for a long time, I know that stealthy doesn't, it's not enough to protect you. It's a, it's a good mitigating factor. Um, but especially with four plus shooting, like you are still, you're still taking damage from through stealthy. Um, so probably the, the change would be to make four plus the sort of default shooting value, but uh, adjust the power of shooting in other ways, whether that's by number of attacks or, you know, like a, a long range shooting penalty, that's that's a little tougher to implement, but just changing the levers to adjust the power of shooting would probably be my, my first uh, big change. So obviously we met in Seattle last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did things go in Seattle last year? Oh, very poorly. I came in 61st in battle and I think 58th overall. So I, I did not have a great weekend last year. <laughs> Because we often talk about like just how hard Masters is, especially just how Absolutely. hard your, your first couple Masters are. I mean, we had a first-time Masters last year win Paragon, but that's like Cinderella's story out of nowhere. I mean, Sean is a fantastic player. Oh, yeah, and, and he's like very, very sharp just as, as a person. Yeah, because I know you guys play all the time. Oh, yeah, he's freaky smart. Yeah, he is. Did going to that first Masters and maybe not doing as well as you thought, how did that affect you or prepare you for this second Masters? Did you have a different perspective? Obviously, those experiences in terms like success wise are about as far apart as you can get. 
So I think, I think I speak for everyone probably in the world here when I say I did not expect that I would win Masters this year going into it. You know, I, I planned to play my hardest for six games. Um, but the, the outcome was, um, as much a surprise to me as to anyone else, but <laughs> believe you me. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the sheer sort of level of, of competition on display is, is really impressive. You know, when you're, when you're 0 and 4 and you go into your fifth game and it's, you're still fighting for your life sort of thing. Everybody there earned that spot sort of thing. Um, and it's a much, it's a much wider meta. Like, you know, with, with a f- comparatively few local guys, I see the same sort of four or five armies on a regular basis. Like, uh, one thing that really, really knocked me on my ass last year was Grant Fetter's, uh, Basilean list. And it was a whole lot softer last year than it was this year. But still, man, just like as soon as I flipped that clock over, he already knew which, which arcs he had. And he said, okay, that, that, and that. And it was, it was basically all over from there. Um, so yeah, that, that wealth of experience in that room is, is really impressive. And like one thing in particular last year is I had four individuals, which is too, too many. Like I had spent, I don't know, probably 600 points on individuals and they all do good things. Like Trident Realm is just wretched with great individuals. Uh, but like every game I ran out of unit strength, couldn't score. That was that was maybe my single like uh, army building takeaway was please have some units alive at the end of the game. We talk a lot about that. You know, we've robbed that's sort of been an interesting topic. The I'm not going to take anyone who doesn't give me unit strength or it's that that you walk that razor's edge between utility and individuals. Absolutely. And just going unit strength, right? What you said that really resonates with me, and I think it's completely true. You get better by playing different people and by playing different archetypes that maybe don't exist in your local meta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you see maneuvers or movements or stuff that you wouldn't have never even thought of. Yeah, Don't quite hear just as much about it now that we're having live tournaments again. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on UB? Do you, are you ever playing on Universal Battle or have you ever messed around with that before? Yeah, I do some Universal Battle. Um, not a whole lot. Sort of not as much as I'd like to. It's weirdly hard to carve out a block for it at home, I find. Like when, when I decide to go play games at a game store on usually it's Wednesdays, Wednesdays for us, you know, I'll go and I'm out most of the evening and that's very normal. But somehow when I'm home, taking the sort of like three, because UB usually plays a little slower, the, the like sort of three hours to, to get a game in just feels impossible somehow. I, I don't know whether it's a mentality shift or what. Um, and then I have basically always hated uh, UB's aesthetics, if you want. It is it's very 2005, but somewhat recently, I want to say six months ago or so, um, they updated it to have automatic alignment of units, and that was that was really a tipping point for me. Where it's like, okay, this is so easy to actually play on the table, and you know, like arcs and everything are just so much easier than in person. You're not getting the laser out; you just click the button, and you have all the information handy. Um, so yeah, UB UB's pretty cool. Uh, it's a little a little cumbersome, and um, I, I complain about the subscription, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty neat. I just I just don't for whatever reason don't end up playing as much of it as I might prefer to, which is a weird thing to say. But like you mentioned, it's not without um, encumbrance. Exactly. Right. You know what I mean. Sometimes yeah. I wish it was a little newer, a little fresher, a little cleaner. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you can't get a game, or you want to try someone from another continent, you know what I mean. Yeah. It is. I think it is. Or if you want to just start getting a list out, try a list before buying anything, right? In lieu of playing with your buddy with blank bases, you can do whatever you want on UB. So still, I think a 
a tool in the tool belt, I guess, and, and trying to refine your game. For sure. Yeah, I mean, even occasionally I'll do just a solo game and practice a deployment in a first round sort of thing. Not not very often, but it's it's pretty handy for that sort of thing. What events did you use to qualify for the Pacific Northwest team? Um, which three ended up being my top three? I couldn't say offhand, but I went to um, Kipper's Melee on Vancouver Island, um, which has been running every year. For, it's, it's a larger event that uh, Kings of War is part of, and it's always, absolutely always, the same weekend as Refugees of the Old World. So uh, it is unfortunate that we have two sort of our two oldest running events on the same weekend, but they're, they're, they're grandfathered in basically. Um, and then Ryan Munsell ran one in uh, the Seattle area called Bothell Brawl um, that we're looking to sort of make our, our premier PNW event. So if anybody's interested in experiencing the PNW, uh, I think it's the second weekend in September uh, in right near Seattle. Um, and then I went down to San Diego for Britain's tournament, Bay of Kings, uh, where I met Jeremy uh, which was so lovely. Like the, the, the whole sort of atmosphere and crowd was a, a really fantastic, like, you know, little gaming vacation experience. Um, and then I think the fourth one would have been uh, Rose city rumble in Portland run by Dan Wright, which is also a great time. Yeah. So really all of the, the big names in uh, the PNW. Well, I assume last year when you were qualifying for Seattle, it must have been very competitive. You knew if they made the team, they were probably going to go. I don't know that it was more competitive. Something that we were all, the, the PNW team was all extremely happy with is we had enough players that wanted to go to not only fill out a team, which is great for a start, but we had two drops that we filled with people that had registered with Best of the Rest. And then we still had, I think, two players playing in Best of the Rest, which for the PNW is pretty exciting, let me assure you. Jeremy, I can't recall in Nashville if we had any Pacific Northwestern players. I want to say Ryan and Garrett were there. I'm not sure, but it was a couple guys were there. Some of the old guard, yeah. Yeah, who've been playing for a while. Did you play Trident Realms sort of all season? Was that like the army that you used to qualify mostly? Do you like to play something else? Or what did you play this year? For GTs, I played Trident Realm, yeah, because they are um, far and away my most complete hobby. Right around Christmas time, sort of uh, in the lead up to December when things slow down, I decided that that was going to be a really good time to get started in the hobby for my next project. Uh, but I had trouble settling on something. Like I fiddled around with a, I ended up running it as Northern Alliance, but it's aesthetically probably closer to uh, Varenger. Uh, you know, it was going to be a lot of Draugr, and then I did a lot of Ice Elementals. Um, and it just wasn't quite meshing right. Um, and like ultimately, much of the reason I abandoned it was I wanted to run uh, Frost Giants for hobby reasons. And I just hated them on the table. Yeah. Points they pay for the icy breath uh, and like being waverable. It just, it sticks in my craw. Like I'm, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, like you, you, you pay for the, it's like headstrong, right? You pay for the coin flip and it doesn't always go your way. And sometimes you fail 15 out of 16 headstrong rolls and that's fine. You know, it all sort of balances out in the end, but I suffer extreme psychic damage from, that sort of thing. I just like really fixate on it. So I just couldn't deal with it. I almost brought Rordia to Masters. Oh, interesting. What was what was the thinking there? Titanforge put out a line of STLs with extremely fancy hats, and I absolutely fell in love with them. They're just like sort of like in the style of old empire. You know, they're, they're Lanchnecks and like Italian yeah. mercenary inspired, but with the right combinations of fantastical elements and the sculpts were great. Like I just fell in love with them. 
So I played that for a bit sort of locally and like it's got some some extreme strengths but then what made me sort of uh chicken out and go back to trident realm uh was i played kyle pool uh on ub in the uh the ub gt and obviously kyle pool's great and he was practicing for masters so he asked me before i game or our game hey do you want a sensible game, or do you want the, the the full force of the goblins? And I said, "Yeah, hit me." Do you want? Do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Give it to me full strength. Yeah. Boy, howdy, did he? He did as requested. Is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, like that game just really made me realize that I just didn't have the familiarity with the tools in my army. Like I just, I just didn't know what to do. Right. I had no instincts for it. Like I, I felt helpless. So I, I sort of took a hard look at things and I knew that I had enough time to either get the hobby done or play practice games. So I said, okay, we can't, we can't take this to Masters. Well, you bring up a really interesting point, which is, and we see it a lot in Masters. Do you dance with the lady you brought or do you do the hot newfangled thing, right? Do you run the army at Masters that you've been running all year long? Or do you ride that razor's edge of meta and make whatever you think is perceived to be having those reps is really helpful, right? So where would you line on that? Is that, are you more of play the army that you're familiar with? Uh, if you want to do well, yeah, for sure. Um, like, and one of the things last year is I, I was tweaking my list, like right up until the minute that dead, uh, the army submission deadline. Um, and what I ended up taking was a little bit experimental. Um, and I had a couple games that were really successful where all those unit strength zero utility pieces did really well for me and tip the game massively in my favor, but against the, the the field at Masters just didn't do it. So I didn't have a whole lot more experience with my specific list this year, um, but it's all pieces that I'm really, really familiar with. So it worked out better, obviously. So how was the trip to Omaha? I mean, obviously you had to fly. Uh, it was it was fine. I finally magnetized all of my bases. Flying with an army it makes me nervous. Yeah, so my, my army, army case is a little bit custom. It's a battle foam, I think, bag, the like pack 432 or something, the, the one that's checked luggage size. And then um, I used to work at a metal fabrication shop. So I just took some scrap steel and bent up uh, sort of like a, a two shelf riser system um, with a couple of trays in there. And it's it's been working great for me. And as long as it stays upright, it works perfectly. Um, but what I learned going to Bay of Kings is that uh, you must lay it down to fit it in the overhead luggage compartment. Oh, no. I had very little damage last year. I was very lucky. But yeah, this year I finally went in and I just, I didn't do the rare earth magnets, which I have done in the past. I just did strips of uh, like sheet magnet. It's the cheap stuff from Amazon. And it worked mm -hmm. so well and so easy. I mean, actually, I've had, some, I've had some warping in my bases as well. So I just did sort of the perimeter of the base in the magnet. So now they don't wobble around anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it took me like an hour and a half to do the, the entire army. I've been putting it off for, I don't know, over, well, well over a year now. So, yeah, very pleased with that. And, uh, yeah, it survived without a hitch. So the, the flight was very kind to my army. The connections, we flew through Denver. There was some problem with the AC. So it was only like a 75-minute flight, but I am uh, I'm a, a rotund fellow strapped in a hot tube between two people because uh, of course i'm too cheap to pay for the uh seat selection so i'm in the middle just just cramped and sweating but it was fine we got through it yeah so yeah i, I got in thursday uh which is good because i was pretty pretty like sweaty and tired so i went to bed at like 8 p.m and slept until like 8 a.m 
So I, I, I charged up before the event. How did you find the venue? It was good. I think I preferred both events being in one room, uh, like like from last year. Like I I didn't see Best of the Rest. I didn't go visit their, their gymnasium. That being said, the amount of space for Masters was wonderful. I didn't even come close to bumping into anybody. Um, there were all those side tables. It was it was really well set up for playing in the event. So that was that was really good. Not being connected to the, to the hotel is a disadvantage, but you know it's you can't have everything, right? You get a, a huge gaming venue, or you get it in the you know conference room of the hotel, or you get it you know a, a good price with money left over for price support. Like it's it's all a push and pull, right? N- nothing comes for free. So yeah, I was I was quite happy with it. Uh, nobody cares about Omaha, Nebraska like in the world. So that was too bad, but you know, we're there to game anyway. So you bring up a good point, you know, no matter what day you pick time of the year place or whatever, there's always going to be something that you have to, to give up. It's, it's all trade-offs. There's a trade-off, right? We're trying to do it at a certain cost. I'm a model guy myself too. I, uh, you know, I love this, the models, the grandeur. When it comes to picking your models, are you a 3D print guy, uh, uh, buying off the rack, a little bit of both, or, or talk a little bit about your models? More than anything, I'm a cheap guy. I play Trident Realms specifically because I always like they're they're the um, Wrath of Kings Hadros models. Oh, everyone from Miniature Market has a, a set of those in their closet. Exactly. Yeah. Ninety percent off. Ninety percent off, and that's how I that's how I got most of my army was ninety percent off. And then a local guy who actually played Wrath of Kings also cleared his stuff out. Um, so like I, I like I always like those models, especially the like. Um, big crab monsters and the Orson Cavalier, I think they call it the the dude riding the squid. Like that's that's a great line of miniatures. Um, so I had always wanted an excuse to buy them, and Kings of War provided exactly that excuse. So yeah, when when miniature market was clearing them out at ninety percent off, I said, "All right, this is this is the time. It's time to play the Fishman." And then beyond there, like sort of whatever catches my eye, right? Like I played Salamanders for about a half a season. Um, and that was the, the one page rules printed stuff. Yeah. It's just whenever, whenever I see a line that I like, uh, especially if it's 3d printed, cause you know, it's so, it's so cheap to pick up a set of models. If you're, if you're getting them in time, especially when they're on the, the sort of discount monthly release on the Patreon. Um, and then like a, a $50 bottle of resin gets you a whole lot of minis. And they've been doing such great stuff with the, with the Mantic vault. I got to call my 3D printers. Rob, I've been making halfling army lists. <laughs> nice. So, <laughs> I, I was, I've been, so I was looking at uh, piece in my in the armies that I've made. I want to get some of the stalwarts, which you mentioned earlier, Rob. They're much cheaper to 3D print. But in your Trident Realms, it's pretty much all um, all that stuff. Is there any, any standout pieces or maybe like what's your favorite unit or monster in your army from a hobby standpoint? From a hobby standpoint, my favorite model in the army is my mantic knucker they absolutely knocked it out of the park with that thing um like i had 3d printed knuckers before they're just some free file from thingiverse and they were nice and it's funny like it's a really really similar vision to the mantic one but just less dramatic less dynamic uh, smaller just like so the mantic knucker is like a, a direct upgrade to my previous knuckers so i love it it's the model that i spent the most time painting had a nice time you know i actually did some like some some real highlighting, which for me is like basically a no go. So, yeah, that was that's going to be my choice. Um, I really like my coral giant, but I'm forever frustrated because it only it's only available in one sculpt. It's like this this big crab monster. It's great. 
And I've, I've actually pestered the sculptor. This is uh, Rocket Pig Games a couple times. Like, hey, can you do just like a, a little repose for this for me? I'll pay. And they're like, sorry, we're not we're not revisiting old stuff for some rando. So that nutter is uh, pretty cool. I have like from working on my snake trident realm, I have like post-traumatic scale disorder. That's my version of uh, oh. PTSD. I painted too many scales, so I got to take a break. You're like a real painter, so I can understand why you might feel that way. Oh, well, um, <laughs> my approach to scales is a nice base coat of contrast and then a couple layers of dry brushing, and they look fantastic. <laughs> when you paint each individual scale three times. Anyway. I remember your snake folk from uh, your Trident Realm army, and like they look fantastic, but um, everything has a cost, right? We, we, we were just talking about uh, pay, uh, balancing. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get those four months back. But I mean, I I yeah. paint not just for the finish. <laughs> I paint not just for the finished product, though. It's also like therapy to me. So to me, yeah, even if yeah. I had if I had to give it away, it, I'm still getting something out of it. Speaking of paint, what did you think of the armies at Masters? The general level of paint, and did any armies sort of stand out to you that you really liked? I really like the models that Brinton chose. The the he used the, the like cauldron knights by a sculptor named Saint Decent, um, and she does just like fantastic work, just like weird macabre fat knights they're incredible that's all of his um the lesser obsidian golems are from her um yeah it was i mean i'll be honest i missed scott holcomb thankfully uh his sort of presence was uh to some extent um the the shoes were sort of filled by i don't remember the the fellow's name but the guy that did the zelda army ryan smith he's a great hobbyist that's right yeah yeah, yeah. breath of the wild army yeah yeah, it's a, a real visual spectacle, that that thing. And that's what you get. Like you say, visual spectacle, and that's what like Scott's armies are. And he'll be first to say, if you get really close down into his paint, he may won't have his crazy blends or, you know, but, but when you're looking at his armies as like a full picture, as an appearance, they are pretty spectacular. And, you know, telling a story, it's just, I'm a simple creature and that's, Basically, the reason that my Trident Realms are bright blue and bright orange is, yeah, give me that, give me that razzle dazzle, you know, just uh, awe me from across the room, and I'll, I'll want to go look at it. But yeah, like you, you know, uh, Ryan Munsell, and this is an interesting example actually, because his sort of like Redwall themed army is is so fun and cute, uh, but he's also a great technical painter. Like you know, he he really gets into the details on those things, and his stuff looks great. I'm more interested in the I don't necessarily want to say the flashy stuff, but the stuff that focuses on the the, the spectacle, the, the fun, really really delivering on a concept rather than the, the the technical stuff. Yeah. So you told us a little bit about your Trident Realms. Like moving forward, are you do you have any like other uh, army projects that you're working on? You're inspired by, or, or what are you thinking about doing next? Yeah. So I've sort of backburner slash mothballed the uh, Rordia army I was putting together. I think it's a really interesting playstyle, different from the Trident Realm, and I absolutely love the models um, that I've 3D printed for it. Um, but I'm actually starting work on a Mantic Nightstalker army for sort of a combination of three reasons. One being uh, the new plastic Nightstalker stuff is really top notch. I've got some sprues sitting right beside me here. I'm going to like genuinely enjoy engaging with the hobby with them, which has always been you know, what I want to do. Like I, I don't spend that much time hobbying. So it's really important to me that I'm like really in love with the stuff that I touch. So that stuff's there. The Mantic Vault is huge. Like for me specifically, like I, I think I am the absolute perfect um, demographic for the, the vault. Like I, I 3d print, I want to support Mantic and I like, I like fiddling around um, like uh, fiends, 
which I hear are famously difficult to assemble. Print in one piece, but they're kind of small. So I've been fiddling around in software on scaling them up. Like there's, there's a ton of detail. I could probably print like a, a Titan sized fiend and it would look great, but I just, I want them a little beefier, right? So I have, I have that flexibility and I hate saying this because I'm afraid that Mantic will listen, but the value proposition of the vault is like really, really good. Um, giving me fiends and mind screeches and soul flares in the same month, in addition to like the armada stuff feels feels a little criminal in the very best way. Getting access to models that I genuinely want um, at a price, because as discussed, I'm a cheap... Like, you know, the the ambush kits are a really, really good value. And then printing, you know, like I, I would never pay for fiends in resin. Like they're probably 80 Canadian dollars for three of them. That's just like fundamentally not on the table for me. Even... Like, no matter where I am in my life, that's just, I'm never going to do it. Printing my own feels pretty good. And the second or third, whatever reason I'm onto here, is I'm really coming around to the idea that building a community and growing a game without an associated product is quite difficult. Like, I'm, I'm not really worried about Mantic's financials, because, like, you know, I, I pay my tithe with the companion, uh, which is super great. Um, the vault now too. And that's like, you know, money straight in their bank every month. Um, so I'm, I'm not specifically worried about financially supporting Mantic. You know, it's good to do sort of thing, but, um, from a community building element, cause I'm like, I'm, I'm a pathfinder as well. Um, up here in Vancouver, you know, showing a, a new player, a demo game with some 3D printed and like sort of customized 3D printed as well as some literally out of production PVC miniatures that have, I've had for 10 years, it just really presents a different, a different vibe where, they, where they're not buying into a cohesive element that a community can organically form around. It's sort of more of like a garage gamer vibe where it's, you know, experienced gamers with their own toys agreeing to use them for sort of a, a third party. And that's where you know, a lot of people I know came to Kings of War from, and I think it's a really, really good fit for that. But for specifically for growing, I'm really coming around to the idea that product on shelves is sort of the the missing link there in getting, you know, it's just like like foot traffic and impulse buys change the course of a person's life, right? Like somebody has a good demo, gets a nice product, goes home and builds it you know, all of a sudden they're playing Kings of War for the next five years. So yeah, I've, I've really had sort of a, a mentality shift on the relationship between communities and product. So that's why I'm building Night Stalkers, uh, both because they're good and to sort of lead by example there. Well, let's talk about my passion, which is terrain. Okay. What did you think of the table setups? Obviously there's two things there. There's the, the amount of terrain, you know, the layout, mm -hmm. but then there's also the size of the terrain. So you know, I'm just thinking in my head, like Trident Realms is an interesting army. I, I, you know, and knowing that there would be some shooting armies there, I'm sure this was a consideration. So, you know, just give us a thought. How did you find the tables and the terrain setups? Pretty normal, two exceptions. There were a couple of rounds with a hill in the deployment zone, just poking into there. Um, you know, it was it was very very clearly defined. Put me ten inches from the edge. It did not come up at all in my games. 
there was not any shooting basically in the games that those those were relevant so it was sort of a oh that's interesting rather than a curse you adam the difficult terrain the the, the flat rough terrain were very small other than that it felt pretty normal to me sort of like comparing notes at the venue a lot of people seem to think that uh, the terrain was small uh, which sort of tells me that we use small terrain because <laughs> yeah the, like the, the forests the hills uh, blocking the, the obstacles it all felt pretty pretty in line with what i expect sort of thing it was just those flat rough terrains that were quite small well that's good if you felt that you were comfortable with the terrain because that means you don't have to alter your strategy basically yeah i uh, i stick the full formation in a wood and hope for the best i wonder if it's just too hard because people have terrain from so many air like trying to say like as a community this is our st- standard size have standard terrain sizes you know not just size in the game but like a forest should be like x big i mean what do you think about that no i think we do need that and and it's something that i'm working on you know i think we could probably make like a vector drawing that somebody could laser cut out like this is this is your forest this is your hill uh, and you know the, the the 10 pieces that you need and if we have some consistent sizes i think it's a, a good thing i think the trickier part is applying a consistent set like in a master's environment but then each region has their own idiosyncrasies with terrain mm-hmm. it, it's always going to be an issue me personally i put a lot of terrain on the table because i know there's going to be a lot of a lot of shooting in the southeast whereas you know maybe where it sounds like where you are luke you don't need as much because maybe canadians have self-restraint <laughs> well i could be mistaken here because the hospitality room was extremely hospitable, but I believe I heard some mention that actually Kyle Brzezinski is working on some standardized terrain. I believe that Mantic is going to put out whether they're just footprints or like a, like a, a physical product, um, which, you know, like Mantic isn't, as far as I can tell, interested in dictating how the game is played, but a product from Mantic will have an outsized influence on the community. I like baselines or just like us kind of in a yeah. community thinking about like, this is about where we should be in plus or minus. It's fine. If a forest ought to be an eight inch diameter and you're using a 10 inch diameter, that's probably fine. If you're using a three inch diameter, that's a real problem. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know, just have at least a ballpark that we sort of accept as right as a community. This is sort of the ballpark. Pathfinder is a rule and it has a huge impact on the game. And how huge ought that impact be? Like we sort we sort of all need to agree on that to some extent. Yeah, because those are rules that need terrain to interact with. Otherwise, it's nothing. Absolutely, it's a Strider or whatever you want to say. And those are key aspects of the game. So, yeah, and, and it's one of those things that is very hard to strictly dictate. And we shouldn't really be interested in it because building terrain rules, right? Like getting freaky with it and putting some stuff together. The the strong tradition of making terrain out of literal garbage. Uh, we, we should we should never try to dim that fire. Embrace it. Exactly. You're speaking Rob's language, my friend. You're speaking <laughs> Rob's language. <laughs> We're on the same wavelength. Well, I would love if you could take us through your list and actually talk about what you took to, to U.S. Masters. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I did finally do some, like I've had uh, sort of a, a fixed sta- stable of Trident Realm units for a long time, which I built in a frenzy for a tournament a year and a half ago. Um, and I've been really, really slow to add anything to it. Um, so I did finally like commit to, and, and you know, the list submission deadline was about a month before the event itself. So I, I made a promise to Adam Ballard that uh, certain things would appear. And I, I did manage to deliver on that. But it was, <clears throat> I, I was in fact painting Friday, yes, in the hospitality room. My new and improved Masters winning Treadon Realm list is 
three regiments of Thule, two of them in the formation, and the third one with the Helm of the Drunken Ram. Having 20 attacks hitting on threes in a regiment size makes the Helm of the Drunken Ram an obnoxiously good value. Like that, that Thunderous one for 15 points is just like a clearly extremely good value, which is why the, I've got that third Thule regiment in there, because that, that's, it, it sort of functionally gives them all Thunderous Charge 1. Now, Trident Realm's a little bit weird, so I'll probably go over the details in a, a little more than usual. The Thule formation is, it's overpowered, is the truth of the matter. The internal balance in Trident Realm is a little lacking. So yeah, the, the formation is obviously too good. Um, it gives the Thule Pathfinder, and there's a, a Thule Mythican, which is a sort of a, a mixed combat hero spellcaster um, that gets an aura of Thunderous Charge plus one for Thule. Um, so that it turns them into quite effective strikers. Like, you know, 20 attacks hitting on threes with Thunderous Charge one probably doesn't sound like a hammer to most people, but Trident Realm's a weird list, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. Those are hammers. They, they get the job done. You got Pathfinder, which is which is a key thing, too. Yeah. Again, if anyone's not super familiar with uh, Trident Realm, they have a lot of Ensnare, which is minus one to hit in melee on the front. Uh, if you stack that with Hindered, then basically nothing does any damage to you. So the, the, the dream for Trident Realm is a Hindered Ensnared charge. Um, because your opponent will bounce, and then they will pull their hair out, and then you will win. The three regiment of, of Thule put in a regiment of Placoderms, sort of speculatively. That was largely Jared McClure down in the um, Portland area that uh, convinced me of their value. Um, he runs them with the Orb of Towering Presence to bring them up to unit strength four. Uh, oh, they're defense six phalanx. That's everything they do. They, they do piddly damage, um, but they're extremely hard to shift. Um, so bringing them up to US four is fantastic. I could not find the points. So, yeah, it's, it's a great upgrade for them, but I, I simply couldn't do it. I've got two hordes of Gigas. They're um, big shield, defense five, um, monstrous infantry. They only have 12 attacks, but it's on melee three with crush two and vicious. So they fight about as well as anything in Dreadnought Realm. And they're, they're tough and they're nimble, which uh, is actually pretty huge. Um, like, it sort of gives you that, um, what's the new dwarf rule? Ordered March. The nimble on the Gigas is so good for um, getting around terrain and unpacking your deployment zone. Because a lot of the time, the deployment zone, there's just stuff in the way. And you want to move up, and I especially want to move up the board. Because I have virtually no shooting, and my my long charge ranges are sort of like 16-inch. I need to occupy the middle of the table as soon as possible. Um, and every now and then, you know, like, a second pivot during charges is so useful. Like... You know, I could get in if I had a second pivot. Well, they do. So the Gigas are just, they're a nice blocky unit strength. They're tough. And they're only 205 points. That's thats probably the best thing about them is they're semi-budget. Um, I brought two regiments of Tidal Swarm, which are uh, nimble and snare chaff that are fearless for 70 points. So although they're defense two and extremely vulnerable to shooting, pretty much the best in class melee chaff like in the game. They're, they're phenomenal. Uh, two Knuckers, which uh, if you haven't played against Knuckers, then you won't have the emotional reaction that you will if you have played against Knuckers. They just have every special rule. Um, they're so useful for harassing flanks. They don't do a ton of damage, but they probably aren't, aren't charging unless it's a flank or a rear. You know, you can chaff with them. They're 150 points, so it sucks to lose them. Um, they're so good at scoring. They're just They're just so nice. It's sort of like the Beast of Nature without wings. Because you keep that nimble if you're disordered, unless it's by a unit with ensnare or phalanx. So they're really good at harassing and they're really hard to stop. Excellent value. 
I got one Coral Giant with the Slayer D6. Coral Giant is pretty obviously over the curve. 215 point Giant with Ensnare. So, like, what else is there to say? Um, it's fast enough that it can sort of pick a fight with a, with something good and just grind it down. Works out really well. Um, and then I've got four heroes. Uh, the first one is the Naiad Centurion, who I've given the Boots of Levitation and the Trident of the Drowned Sea. Uh, the Trident of the Drowned Sea is a unique upgrade. It is a shooting attack with a 12-inch range, uh, the same attacks, uh, f- five attacks, uh, range of three plus, and piercing one. And crucially, if it damages a target, they are disordered that turn. So with the Boots of Levitation, uh, anything within 24 inches can become disordered. Uh, it's really good for turning off shooting and fly, especially. Um, so that is an absolutely crucial control piece. It can dart around the table, turning off the special rules that would otherwise ruin your day. Um, it's also defense 5, ensnare, regen 4+, plus, so it's obnoxiously hard to kill. Um, you know, it comes to 170 points, so it's expensive for an individual, but just insane utility out of that thing. It's it's nuts. Um, the other sort of like star of the show is the Thule Aquamage um, that I've given the Sacred Horn and a Wild Charge plus one aura. So everything within nine inches is a plus one Wild, wild Charge. Uh, crucially, plus one, not one, because it stacks with the Thule's innate Wild Charge. Um, and then I gave it Bark Skin. I was pretty close to giving it Weakness this time, uh, because Weakness with, I've got three Defense 6 units and one Defense 5 unit. So Weakness is really strong with those there. Um, but I I finally took Bark Skin because the truth of the matter is, even on the Gigas, who are uh, Defense 5 Big Shield, so Bark Skin hitting on 5s is still like good enough to cast. Because uh, like, if you get one or two successes... That's one or two extra wounds on defense six. So it's it's a really strong multiplier in that respect. Um, and yeah, Barkskin was amazing all weekend. So I'm, I'm, I made the right choice. Um, and the last unit is the hero from the formation, Thule Mythican, uh, that I gave the Gnome Glass Shield because they're defense four by default. So they're uh, ensnared defense six until they take a wound. Um, and then I gave Knowledgeable and Host Shadow Beast two because I could not find the extra five points for Host Shadow Beast 3. Um, but giving it Knowledgeable makes it Spellcaster level 2, so when Shadow Beast goes off, I still get four attacks out of it. Um, and that's another one of my like extreme power pieces, because uh, with Ensnare and Defense 6, it can basically chaff anything for one turn, um, and then walk away. Um, and it has five attacks built in with Crushing Strength 1, and it has a Thunderous Charge 1 aura, which it of course benefits from. And then host shadow beast, like it will pretty regularly do six or seven damage to like just about anything. Uh, and it's an individual and until it takes damage, it's almost impossible to kill. So it's just like such a strong little piece in a way that individuals probably should not be. Yeah, that's, that's the list. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to get into some juicy masters details. We'll be right back. I am the U S masters champion, Patrick Zora Allen, and you're listening to counter charge. Welcome back to Counter Charge. You mentioned it a little bit, but ha- had you played sort of different variations of Trident Realms over the year? I know you took them to the most of your your uh, events. Did this list for Masters sort of develop over time? You know, talk a little bit about how this specific list sort of evolved. Yeah, I mean, this list was basically me trying to build the most competitive Trident Realm list that I could, at least based off of the tools that I like. 
Uh, because one thing about Trident Realm players is we absolutely cannot agree on what's good. You put two Trident Realm players in a room and ask them to compare notes, and they're going to be looking at the other person like they're crazy. And thankfully now I have the internet clout that I can say I'm right, so that's nice. Yeah, so like probably the biggest the biggest departure for me was leaving my Naiad and Snarer horde behind, um, which is a little bit heartbreaking because I, I really adore the work I did on its base. Um, I don't know if you remember it, Jeremy, but it's got that... I do. It was beautiful. That great big sunken dock. Yeah, and it really, it really sort of anchors all of the basing of the list. Like it, yeah, sort of sets the scene for the rest. Uh, I love me good basing too. Yeah, no, it was a great unit. It was a tough decision, but it's just like you know, when I ask myself what's sort of not pulling its weight, it's that. And I also uh, needed some more out of production Wrath of Kings minis. So a uh, big shout out to Dan Wright, my dear friend down in Portland for... Big Dan. Sliding me a few of those. Yeah, big Dan. And then, yeah, I put off building them for ages and finally just sat down and did it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got the the utility pieces and the power pieces that I know how to deliver. I was expecting shooting for sure. You know, Scorchwings, Gladestalkers are still in a pretty, pretty good place. Um, so always historically ran some depth horrors because they are extremely efficient and cheap unlocks. Um, and if they don't get shot, they're insane, like wildly overpowered. Uh, and if they do get shot, they waver and die. The only stuff I brought was stealthy or defense six or iron resolve, defense five. So like being, being not shot off the table was a big priority. Um, and yeah, that's, that's sort of where it brought me. Like the, the third regiment of Thule just makes big sense because it's a good base profile and the helm of the drunken ram just like really kicks them up a notch um the formation is mandatory for competitive trident realm um two hordes of gigas felt really good all weekend i think it's maybe not the the right choice necessarily for like other other unit strength stuff but it's one of the right choices i feel um yeah it's it was sort of variations on a theme of what I've run a lot, but uh, really, really ruthlessly discarding stuff that I didn't feel was going to serve me and bringing more stuff that would. Yeah, I feel like sometimes a list will have like a core melody, but you can sometimes take it up an octave or down or you can tweak it a little bit. Sure, yeah. You know, it's if you change it too much, you're really you're, you're kind of making it into a completely different song, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and like fundamentally... Um, the gigas stand around and grind a little bit. The Thule hit things and everything else controls the battlefield. Cause if I, if I can control things such that my Thule are getting charges and then not taking like lethal damage in return, cause one of the great things about ensnare is basically my entire army can take one round from any one unit. Like there's very few things that can solo one shot a Trident Realm unit. That's sort of what it comes down to. So if I can if I can choose my engagements and sort of freeze that line so I'm not getting combo charged, then I'm probably in good shape. And that's that's really what the list aims to deliver. I mean, you mentioned a little bit a tournament like Masters, right? We're we're creating these lists, or you're creating these lists that are due ahead of time. So you're doing it in in sometimes a vacuum, right? You have an anticipation of what you think people are going to bring, and you're trying to react to that, and people are trying to react to you reacting to them, and it it goes on and on and on in a multi layered uh, casserole of awesomeness. And the result was not what I was expecting. All those, I guess dwarves sort of make sense, but the force of nature was a big surprise. Uh, zero Sylvan kin was a big surprise. Not, not a whole lot of greater heirs on the field. Yeah, I was, I was not prepared for the sort of like published list of, of what was coming. Like, 
I knew dwarves were in a good spot, but that jumped out at me a little bit. I mean, what is is that sort of the main sort of takeaway for you theme wise? Is you, we just saw maybe some forces of the abyss was up there too, which surprised me. I didn't play anyone, so I, I still don't really understand forces of the abyss. My my dear friend Russell Romano um, learned the hard way what they do. Uh, I think his game three, and yeah, he was just saying like, oh, they are a pretty interesting list, but I had no idea going in. It was not the meta I was expecting, that's for sure. Often we try to do episodes, right, to to help people get better or people who are interested in refining their game or anything. What, do you have any tips for people for preparing for Masters? What would you say to someone who's maybe wanting to take their, their game up to a little bit of a level to compete at a you know harder event like that? What do you think is a good place to focus on? Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche, but play people that are better than you. If there aren't any locally, then start traveling or playing online. And, uh, you know, something I say a lot is better lucky than good. So uh, if you can just get good matchups and not have bad matchups, then you'll probably do pretty well. Year after year, that's a narrative that we hear from the master. They'll tell you, I didn't have the bad list. I didn't play the one list I didn't want to play, or I got, I didn't on this board, I got this scenario, or I got this scenario against this faction, which is the only scenario that I think I can beat that faction in. Well, looking back on it, what's one tip that you'd give to somebody listening that says, I want to go to master's next year. The tip for preparing for masters is try not to go in with expectations. If, if you qualify for masters, you are probably good at the game. You do well, at least some of the time locally. Um, and so you, you obviously have a sort of a sense of what a, a tournament looks like. Like, you know, people, people qualifying for masters are tournament players to some extent. Um, like, you know, if you, if you get pulled in because someone dropped and you're, you know, sort of a mid-table player, then you'll be more used to it. But um, Masters is a tough room. Uh, it's a very competitive room. And it's a lot of people from all over uh, the continent, I should say, um, with different expectations and sort of plans for the day. But fundamentally, if they care enough to go to Masters, um, they care about improving their play. So they're going to try to play a hard game um, and see how they can do relative to the field um so if you can if you can leave your expectations for especially your own performance at the door uh and just have a really nice time and meet some new pals then it should be a good experience even if you end up 61st and you mentioned some of the players locally that you've been playing all year was there anything that your local players did to help you get ready for this environment like specifically no um, like I'm, I'm the most experienced player in our local community up here, like in, in British Columbia, well, in, on, on the mainland British Columbia, anyway, the island is sort of its, its own separate beast. I sort of spend more of my time like community building than specifically like competitive preparing, but Russell Romano very kindly decided to play elves, which has, has been a good and valuable experience just being shot off the table by Glade Stalkers. Um, one of the reasons I left my Nyad and Snares home is a game that we played where I was foolish enough to deploy them out of cover and he shot them off top of one. I just, I just can't have that happen. You know, that, that happens once and I'm shaken. That happens twice and I'm checking myself into the Institute, right? You mentioned expectations. That's hard to go into something without expectations, but I mean, certainly. You mentioned it, you know, you may not want to have expectations for how you're going to finish, but just on a basic level, though, you said you didn't finish as well as you would have liked in Seattle. So, I mean, maybe you went into the expectations this year. Hey, do better than last year. My goal this year 
was to play six games sort of as hard as I could and, and see where it all came out, right? Like it's, it's, it's a whole event. It really is the social event of the season for Kings of War. Um, so getting there and like, you know, I really like all of the PNW guys that I traveled with. So spending some time with them, seeing people like Sean Polka, like Brenton Williams that I, you know, know from previous events, but don't see very often. Um, and then, yeah, like one of the things about having a pretty small local meta is you see the same people with the same lists and they, you get, you get used to their stuff. So getting exposed to new styles, new players, new lists is all really interesting and really exciting when you're a big old nerd who cares about Kings of War a lot. So that's, that's really what I was going for and just sort of pushing myself as much as I could to do as well as I could. Um, and then when I was 3-0 at the end of day one, it's like, okay, I'm doing really fantastic. Obviously, I want to keep winning, but if I lose all three of my game two days, that's that's three and three. That's sort of like uh, Ryan Munsell's usual putting batting average. So if I'm if I'm at three and three, I'm feeling great about the weekend and you know moving on with my life. But uh, obviously, it went a little better than that. Well, now we're at the point that everybody wants to hear. Everybody's going to get real close. They're going to pull their headphones in a little bit. Let's talk about your games. We'll go game by game. Give us the opponent, what army they were playing, what scenario. Give us a sense of the terrain and the layout. Give us the highlights or the lowlights. Um, in your case, all highlights. And not not all highlight, believe me. Give us that sense, though, of like those critical moments where it was one dice roll that could swing the balance. Game one. I felt pretty good about it going in. Uh, my opponent was Kenneth Heisler, uh, K2, Skullface. Um, playing orcs because um, he, he is the orcs guy. That's that's what he does. And I felt pretty good about he, his list is a lot of Morax and a horde of great axe and a horde of fight wagons uh, and then some sort of like chaffy uh, objective holders. Um, I felt really good about it because Morax and Thule are pretty equal into each other. Morax are fours and twos and Thules are threes and threes. So they do really similar damage to each other. Morax are speed five, wild charge D3. Thule are speed six while charge D3. So just having the speed advantage means that every engagement is in my favor, basically. The scenario was raise. And we sort of had it um, with two of his tokens on my right flank, two of my tokens on his or on my left flank. Um, so a, a bit of that classic toilet bowl. Um, so I tried to just sort of play defensively on the right and strike really aggressively on the left. And that's more or less how it worked. Um, he did a better job of fending me off on the left than I was expecting. So it took like right until turn six for me to score those two points. Um, and then on the right, um, he sent his fight wagon legion into a tidal swarm and obviously popped it. Um, unfortunately, I, I left four unit strength defending that point, knowing that the fight wagon legion was unit strength four, uh, but I failed to account for him killing one of those four unit strength. So we scored that, uh, that point like, the top of turn two, uh, but then I mobbed the fight wagon legion and I spiked the dice a bit and picked it up in one, um, so that was good. Um, and then his great axe horde, which was uh, quite central, uh, which I very deliberately deployed away from. Like I had stuff on both flanks, but nothing really in the center for them to fight uh, because they hit hard. I don't, I don't want to deal with that if I don't have to. Um, they went over to support the right hand flank, uh, which sort of collapsed early, and then I, I hopped down on that. Um, and took the center. He had a really good play where he snuck a war drum past our our scrum, which was really messy. Like, you know, we're, he's, he's got some wavered chaff and I've got a wavered thule, so we're charging past each other and the lines are all messed up. And meanwhile, this war drum just 
tiptoes past everything and burns a point. Um, so that ended 4-2 in my favor. Yeah, and I think I think it was a very favorable matchup, honestly. Just the, the, the speed difference was significant enough that, you know, I have to make more mistakes than he does by, by a, you know, a bigger margin than I did ultimately. Yeah, I'm curious, too, all, all over the course of the weekend, you know, Thule being speed six, and in your case, if you get the aura D3 plus one, that is a very fast unit. That's cavalry fast. Yes. Yeah. My maximum charge range on them is 16 inches. And uh, spoiler alert, that's going to come up later. Going into game two, it was against. So I've, I've got some conflicting reports on my game two opponent's last name. I believe it's Keith Monac or Monach. You're right. There's no R. Okay. So it, w- it was often written Monarch, uh, which is cool. But yeah. So Keith Monac, who was playing Salamanders, his list name was the like Fire, Phalanx, and. Uh, blunderbuss or something so it was two hordes of ceremonial guard and four regiments of corsairs three phoenixes one of them the ancient phoenix uh, and three comodons so it was pretty shooting heavy which was interesting but yeah i wasn't too concerned because i don't think that 18 inch pierce one shooting is in a particularly good spot right now he deployed with his um, one ceremonial guard horde basically right in the center, one sort of off to the right, and then the four Corsair regiments sort of on the left-hand side with uh, Phoenixes and Commodons in behind there. Um, he went first, so he got a bit of long-range shooting off. I think he killed a Tidal Swarm uh, top of one, because with um, Commodons, they're height three, and they ignore Obscured, so he sniped him out from behind my Gigas, because Gigas, weirdly, are height two. Um, but then I just pushed up really hard with everything so he got he got one full round of shooting with his corsairs and phoenixes and comedons um he wavered one regiment of thule and did sort of a variety of chip damage elsewhere not close to enough for a critical mass and then i was on top of him my my sort of alpha strike i flubbed a little bit um so i only killed one regiment of corsairs that turn but i engaged in such a way that it didn't give him any like juicy flanks or anything. I, I, I froze the line. I didn't get punished for not killing stuff. Um, and then I, I overwhelmed that the left-hand side with the Corsairs and sort of came over into the central um, ceremonial guard. Uh, the Phoenixes gave me absolute fits. Um, like if, if I don't focus fire on something, then it may not die. And when Phoenixes don't die, they regenerate a whole lot. <laughs> so um, they, they blocked me up and like, I think his ancient phoenix ground down a knucker or or critically wounded it and it ran away or something. So yeah, it ended up uh, 7-0 on scenario, specifically because I rolled a 1 on an overrun, um, which brought me exactly into an adjacent um, two-foot by two-foot area, um, but not by enough that his phoenix who charged into it uh, was also in that area. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a bit of luck there. Um, but yeah, I just... Uh, the the resistance to shooting that I built into the list served me well. Um, I played very aggressively and picked his pieces up and uh, controlled the line, basically. And do you like the control scenario, Luke? I do. It's one of my favorites, um, but I play Knuckers, so my opinion is not that relevant. Um, yeah, Tr- Trident Realm is good, good at control. It's like having those cheap flyers, right? That at the end of the game, unit strength it's flyers. 
it's unironically better because yeah. if they're disordered, they're still nimble. So exactly. No, that's a great point. They're so good at scoring. Yeah. Knuckers are just so great for scenario play. They're one of the strongest scenario pieces in the game for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about game three. Game three was against Kyle Poole, um, who I was meeting for the first time in person, but we played one game. We played a very uh, consequential game online. So in some respects, I owe my victory to Kyle Poole. He was running goblins. Then the scenario was plunder. Um, goblins are tricky because their shooting is very good against Trident Realm, but their melee is insanely bad against Trident Realm. You, you never expect a rabble horde to, to do much of anything, but against Trident Realm, they do like literally nothing. Like my Aquamage can chaff a horde of rabble for probably three turns if i'm so inclined like ensnare grinds them absolutely to a halt so you can you can get away with bullying rabble in a way that even other armies can't bully rabble win so it was it was an interesting game two point objectives or sorry the two point loot tokens were on the extreme left on a hill and then dead center and we both deployed sort of heavily towards the left on, the, on that sort of like two-thirds of the table um basically across from each other. Um, and then he put Brony Snark and a Regiment of Rabble and a Blaster more towards the right there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... Um, Thomas, one of my local guys who kicks my teeth in all the time, plays Goblins. Um, so I sort of know... I have a better, a decent sense for where I can be strong and where I'm weak. Um, so I pushed forward as much as I could to bully his stuff um, and just start start fighting fighting rabble because when there's he he had four hordes and four regiments of rabble so when there's that much rabble on the board you need to start chewing through them as soon as possible because it's just it's so much nerve you have to roll so many dice to get them off the table yeah on the right hand side i bumped a rabble regiment with a knucker which wavered it a bit lucky um, and then the next turn i finished it off um, and then the blaster was sort of poised to counter charge me um, but i just walked away and grabbed a token and started carrying it towards the middle while the while the blaster chased me. Um, the middle went pretty well. The Thule formation um, started killing Rabble, I think, turn two. So that was good. Because, I mean, like, one nice thing about Plunder is he can't just sit back and shoot me. He has to contest the tokens. So um, that, that means feeding Rabble into the grinder. And uh, grind I did. Uh, meanwhile, the Naiad Centurion um, disordered and then Chased down in combat, Grony Snark, killed him over a few turns. Um, a Knucker and uh, Anisha, the, the Thule Formation hero, um, sort of blasted through the rabble wall and then immediately turned on the wingets. Uh, because one thing I actually learned in our online game is that unmolested wingets will just like remove unit strength turns five, six, and seven, right? Like if, if they're if they're not controlled, they will just contribute so much value over time. And that cannot be allowed. So I made sure to prioritize them. Um, and, and then on the left side, he basically crushed me. Um, my placoderms got spooked by a mincer um, and like wavered two turns in a row and did nothing and then died. Um, the Thule over there killed a rebel regiment and then got surrounded and killed. So um, yeah, it was it was a super, super tight game of trying not to get shot off by wingets and war trombones with the valuable stuff while grinding through and focusing on tokens. Um, and he actually clocked out, I think, midway through turn five. Uh, and I think we got a seven. So I had uh, one or two turns unopposed 
um, and managed to take an additional token off of him. So it ended up uh, five to two in my favor. That was the first of my extremely sweaty games. Uh, Jeremy, you weren't there, so you may you may not have a full picture of what I looked like. It wasn't just you, though; it was everybody. It was <laughs> oh yeah, yeah but uh, I was I was the wettest I have ever been. Swampy just man, absolutely. You were, you, were, you, were, you were the swamp thing, basically. Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah, yeah. Just saying. like like absolutely mentally taxed, dripping with sweat, hands shaking. Just like you know, you got two minutes left on the clock. You got to go, go, go. So. Uh, yeah, ended day one three and zero, which is very exciting. Um, personal best, obviously, um, and great opponents, great games. So off to a great start. Well, let's travel back to the past, and we're actually going to hear from Luke Frazier Sunday morning. He's three and zero. He's he's bright eyed and bushy tailed and he's excited about the opportunity before him. So. Uh, we'll be back after we hear from Luke. Sunday morning, U.S. Masters Omaha 2023. We're with one of the undefeateds. Hello there. This is Luke. Luke Fraser. Luke Fraser, Pacific Northwest. So uh, are you, you're Vancouver? Vancouver, Canada. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I'm our only Canadian citizen. That's awesome. There's another Vancouver guy, but he's a U.S. citizen. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So how, what's the scene like up there? It's small, um, particularly locally. There's sort of like, sort of, uh, if, if I could get everybody out, there might be 20 of us, but... In terms of regular play, it's mm-hmm. more like three to six sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, but then we're close to Vancouver Island, which used to have a really thriving scene. It's sort of uh, in a hibernation period right now. Um, and then Seattle's not too bad. It's a little bigger than we are. Um, and Oregon's huge. That's yeah. Like, Oregon's the hub. Do you get to go down to like Grossy Rumble a lot? Or Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I, I mean, I, I travel down locally whenever. Well, I guess I'm you have to if you're going to make the team. Yeah, yeah. You have to play in the tournaments. Right, that's right. So. We've got like one GT on Vancouver Island up in Nanaimo every October. Uh, unfortunately, it's always the same weekend as Refugees of the Old World. Right. Uh, ben Stoddard's tournament in um, Rexburg. Exactly. Uh-huh. Now, last year you came to the Masters in Seattle. That's right. First time? First time. Yeah. And you came with Brian Happynuck? Is that his name? Uh, Brian Happynuck, yeah. Yeah. And where's he this year? Didn't I haven't heard from him in almost a full year now. Oh, no. Uh, he, Just... he's, he's like an entrepreneur or something, so he was juggling uh get it spinning plate it happens it happens up and running so well how'd you do last year or in seattle how did I, I did terribly i think well I and that's why i want to kind of set the, set, <laughs> i want to i'm foreshadowing that's here. right because right. it's, it's the the juxtaposition of where you are now so you did terribly but did you take away from that some things you needed to do to clean up your play or change your list or yeah i mean like a little bit i um i was playing Treadin realm as, uh, again um pretty similar army um and it was a much greedier list like I took, I took four individuals. Part of the problem, right? So scoring is scoring, scoring is down. Basically, every game was I lost all my unit strength, and I had two aquamages running around desperately trying to icy breath for some points. But right. uh, yeah, like it's it's a lot of fun in you know game day play when you're just uh, using the f- the fun utility spells. But at uh, it turns out Masters is a pretty hard room, so didn't didn't go over so well. Right. Well, let's set the stage. You're three and zero. Three and zero after day one. Yeah. So, you got to be pretty happy about that. Yeah, it feels great. It feels great. I mean, on, if I if I uh, eat dirt all day today and end up three and three, there's three and three in a room like this yeah, is yeah, yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. So, who did you start off with on uh, in, in round one yesterday? Skullface himself, K two, Kenny Heisler. Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. That's and he's playing orcs because that's yeah. the only army course, he would ever orcs, play orcs. Yeah, yeah. So, did you feel comfortable with that matchup? Or yeah, I felt really good going into it. Um, I think that we were playing rays, right? Is that uh, it was raised. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, that's 
maybe my best matchup because Morax are speed five wild charge D three and Thule are speed six wild charge D three. So, so as long as you roll good on the wild charge, you're 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 sitting well. Pretty. I mean, my my default threat range is his maximum threat range. Exactly. Yeah. So um, and like I mean, obviously he knows his orcs inside and out. So he was layered up really well. I couldn't get the charges I, w- I wanted, but uh, you know, like those those two units do really similar damage to each other. Right. Um, so with the speed advantage, it's it's uh it's tough to overcome. And then I spiked off his uh, fight wagon legion in one go. Oh my gosh! So, yeah. That's a high nerve. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sure it was rallied up and all that. And like it was two units in the front and one in the flank. So okay. I put a lot into yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't like you it wasn't a, it, it you was put the it, with the damage on it. It wasn't an insane lucky roll, but it was lucky. Yeah. And he he left it out of inspiring too. So. Oh no. Well, I mean, um, I, sometimes you have to do that with yeah. I mean, cuz they're fearless, right? So Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, okay. Well, if you get them, you get them. Yeah, yeah. So So that was a big win. Um, I think that was an 18-3. Okay. Not, not huge. Uh, he, <laughs> I left four unit strength on a token, knowing that his uh, Fight Wagon Legion was unit strength four. So I was like, okay, he can't burn that. Uh, tragically, the chaff unit that was one of those unit strength, he killed on the charge. So he, he got that token, uh, which I shouldn't have given him. But still, yeah, it was uh, it was tight. And then he one of his war drums uh, marched across the board and scored another one. But oh, my gosh. Thankfully, uh, Knuckers to the to the rescue and got a nice rear charge on his Great Axe Legion, so I managed to take the center. But that's awesome. Yeah. How about game two? Game two was against uh, Keith Monak. Um, and where, where's he from? He was from I never remember the regions. The U.S. is all the same to me, right? Well, it's like Canada to us, right? Yeah, uh, Saskatchewan. <laughs> you, you know what? Um, being from Vancouver, I'm not I'm not like a real Canadian, so right. Well, you're like the West Coast. Yeah. You're like California here in the United States. I'm, I'm basically a suburb of Seattle. Like we're we're just cultural vassals. It's pathetic. Um, <laughs> so you played Keith in the second round. What was he playing? He was playing Salamanders. The um, Pike shot and flame or something. Okay, it was the one with four regiments of corsairs. Oh, you're right. Yeah, and the two hordes of. He's uh, from. He's from Orlando. Orlando. Okay. okay. Yeah, he's a, he's a southeast player. Okay, that that, that tracks. And his brother's playing too. His br- brother, but his brother's playing for the Midland because okay. he's a merc. When he said he was playing corsairs, I was like corsairs. Who plays corsairs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out you maybe shouldn't play corsairs so much. Um, and that's another real sweetheart matchup for me. All of my stuff is either defense six or stealthy. So, like, you know, Corsairs shoot well, and I got the Pierce. Um, so it's not worthless shooting. But I've got the uh, the Naiad Centurion with the Trident of the Drowned Seas that disorders something. I've got fast stuff. So, like, he gets he gets one shot off, and then I'm on him. Right. Um, well, and, and yeah. four regiments is a lot, of, right? He's got four regiments? And, and he's also got three Comedons and three Phoenixes. So, like, right. it's pretty good ranged pressure. But, um, yeah, like, he got one good waiver off round one. And some some good blink damage elsewhere. Like you picked up, and the uh, range of those are eighteen. No, eighteen. Yeah. So, yeah. and eighteen on the phoenixes. I, the problem with the phoenixes, they're not piercing. So it's like unless you're playing. Well, I mean, I guess you've got some well, juicy, I, I, juicier I've stuff. got a ton of defense three as well. Right. Even exactly. though it's stealthy, hitting on fives when you know threes, that 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 does numbers. Right. So. And like Thule, once they take you know four or five damage, they're real really in that danger zone. So. And so, how did the game end up? Uh, that I mean, was, obviously one. I think it was. I think it was a twenty. Okay, it ended up being being a big win. Uh, I got I got all six zones, just barely. Like I, I, I won one of them because my D six overrun was exactly one inch, which brought my unit into that zone. Right. And then when he charged me, his uh, contesting unit was out of the zone. So Absolutely just like, crazy. The, the the perfect storm. And how about game three? Game three was against uh, Kyle Poole, the downloader himself. 
Um, I played. You in beat Montana. Kyle. I did. I'm yeah. so happy because I mean, I play. I play Kyle a lot. He's <laughs> right. he's right. living in Memphis. He's yeah. one of our or one of our regular sparring partners. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to bring him down a peg. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, and he's running sort of a, a weird like semi melee focused goblin list. It is. It's um, still all got a lot of trash. Yeah, but he's got a lot of defense. He's got some defense six with it. Yeah, the, 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 the mincers. The mincers. He's got uh, cavalry. He's, yeah, it's, it, you're right. He's, he's not running the cavalry. He's not any cavalry. No. So it's just a lot of shooting though. Yeah. Trombones. It's all the yeah. the bangets. He's, he's the, got he's got three war trombones, three wingets, one bangit. Uh, and then like the the blasters of a bit, and then the uh, the the required alchemist curse. He's, no, he's, he's not. Didn't have them either. Jeez, I haven't. No. I've been paying attention. Yeah, yeah. So he's been, he's been tweaking it. Yeah, he's got four hordes and four regiments of rabble. So a lot of a lot, a lot of goblin bodies to yeah. To throw the, the, the tricky part about that list is you know people don't realize you got to you just kill the unit strength. Yeah, and if you can kill the unit strength, then the army loses a little bit. Well, but you got to get in there to kill the unit strength, and then that's when you're in this kill box. Sort of what I've learned about goblins is. If I if I leave the the shooting utility pieces alive, turns five, six, and seven, they will kill my pretty fragile unit strength units, and then I'm left with nothing. So that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I managed to control the wingets fairly early, um, and like uh, turns out, melee five against ensnare uh, is real bad. So another uh, fairly favorable matchup. So I, I almost feel like I'm uh, preying on the cool off meta picks with uh, the right. realm. Uh, and now, now it looks like I have to face something a, a little less suited to my tastes. But have you looked at the stats? And I, I have. Yeah. Who, who are you going to be playing this? I, I think I'm up against. Can't remember the fellow's name. Uh, Order of the Green Lady. Oh, Marcelo. Marcelo. Oh yeah, because yeah. Marcelo's number one. You're number two. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah so you're playing Marcelo yeah. uh, with Order of the Green Lady. He's yeah. he's been murdering people. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm developing a game plan. It's it's not looking good for me. He's got he's got five. Don't say that. Come on, you can do it. You can do it, Luke. You're the giant slayer. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, he's got five strong, uh, fast units. So he outthreats me, and he's got, he puts sharpness on his knights. So he's got twenty attacks hitting on twos. Which, right. Uh, as an ensnare player, you never want to see. But uh, no, I, I can pray that he's not that familiar with Trident Realm because the the ensnare math always. Well, Trident Realms is not a common army, and it's so weird, right? Like, yeah, uh, I love it, but in, until you've uh, sort of gotten used to it by playing it a few times, absolutely, it's it's, it's it, it takes some time. Well, it, it's everybody goes, oh, it's so squishy. Well. It makes up for it in other it ways it within Snare, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. There are other things to mitigate. Yeah, it may not have the defense, yeah. but it's got other damage mitigation. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. There's there's no no shame in eating dirt to that matchup. Just go in there and swing away, man. Exactly. I mean, the reality is that I think he's got a pretty big lead, and so... He's at like 59 or something? Exactly. He's, yeah, or yeah, something up there. So. He's up there. And so you just got to keep swinging away, yep. you know, and... At the end of the day, most of the time, the master has to go six and zero. Yeah, we've had one that we've had at least one that that lost a game, and a couple that have drew. I think, right. but it's it's hard to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, blackjack the the points differential starts off so big that like anything lower than a you know seventeen point win is pretty rare. Right. Right. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, do you like scoring systems? Let's talk about that. What, what's your favorite scoring system? You know, I don't. I don't really know. Um, like, I don't. I'm not a, a big opinion haver on on scoring yeah. systems. Um, I do like uh, the incentives that uh, blackjack has in place, like where where you need to not lose units. No, Northern Kings really rewards right. It's, it's killing it's, at all costs. Yeah. Um, it's all about the scenario play, yeah, really. Yeah. And, and kill as much as you can kill, but yeah. don't worry about the 
but, but what, what, uh, yeah, so Northern Kings is all about just killing, whereas Blackjack, you have to conserve those points. And that's, that's very compatible with sort of high approach Trident Realms, where right. every, every piece is precious. So. Well, yeah, everything may be chaff, but you would not want to use it yeah, if you don't have yeah. to. I mean, all, all my best games, uh, all of my damage dials are on the table. Every unit's got four to ten wounds. They're dinged up and still kicking, so. Right. Yeah, and like, I, I generally prefer the focus on unit strength over scoring drops. Like in, I think it's Northern Kings where, some scenarios that it's not the amount of unit strength in the zone, it's the number of scoring units. Right. The the unit strength one heroes are already good enough. Right. They, they don't need that scenario advantage as no. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I just like that there's diversity in some of the scoring systems yeah. so that it, it's not always the same. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so I find that sometimes the, the scoring system will or can incentivize taking certain armies versus others. Like yeah. under Blackjack is – or even Northern Kings – you really can't play an army that plays the scenario well, but then can't kill. Right. Like, because you, you're not going to win the tournament if yeah. you just win the scenario, but yeah, you yeah. can't put out the damage. Yeah. It's cool to have different things. What are you guys typically doing in, in Vancouver? I mean, what, what's, are you guys mostly blackjack? In the PNW, we've mostly been doing uh, variations on Northern Kings. Northern uh, Kings, okay. Specifically to avoid the sort of feel bad situation that blackjack can create. Uh, and like, you know, for me, if I get zero points, that's fine. But I mean, a loss is a loss. And if you want to give me five points for it, I had no bearing on me. The, the, the math all works out the same way, but it, it can it can feel like psychologically when, at, at the end of the tournament. You look at your tournament points. And you have it, you would have been you would have been just as good not playing the game. Exactly. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah. So at least getting those like, you know, five freebie points it's like, yeah, I came up to a 22. But right. Uh, and whether that psychological effect is real or just speculation. Placebo by, effect or, or something. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? But uh yeah, I mean it's it's not a super competitive scene. Now you guys have a few events, so you got Kippers, right? Is one of them Kippers Melee in Nanaimo. Yeah, um, the other big one, um, Ryan Munsell runs. It's called Bothell Brawl. Bothell Brawl in Bothell. That used to be part of Emerald Dragon, and then that's <sighs> I don't. Know. I, I'm not going to hold you to it. I, I still get emails from Emerald Dragon because I signed up one year, but then it was it was mid COVID, so it was canceled right. or something. But um, yeah, it's just a run out of a game store now. Yeah, right. So. Um, and then we'd always do Rose City Rumble. In that sounds Portland. like a fantastic. Dan Wright is a great person. Dan Wright is a great host. Lovely to be around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then you got Wildwood Brawl. I think Wildwood is usually a one day. I think it's going to be a two day this Ooh, year. Oh, awesome! That's that's also somewhere in the Portland area. Right. Um, I think a, a bunch of the Oregon players are an hour or two out of Portland itself. Down right. And you guys have a bunch of Oregon players on the team this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. It's is it half Oregon players? We got the McClure the McClure brothers, the, the, the brothers McClure, Dan Wright, and. Dustin Church. Right, so half the team. Half the team, yeah. yeah. And then you got yourself. Myself. Ben Stoddard. Uh, ben Stoddard. From Ryan Munsell. Yeah, right. And who's the fourth? The fourth is Russell Romano, my boy from Vancouver. Okay, another guy, but he's American. He's yeah, he, so he's, he's from San Diego originally. Uh, he moved up to Vancouver. That's, to, that's fantastic. When he, when he married his wife. But that's they're, they're thinking about moving back down south, so he, he may pop up on the West team in the next couple of years. Well, we'll you know, there's a lot of good players in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably. You're I, one of them. Yeah. Right? Uh, your boy, uh, Brandon Golby. Brandon Golby out of Edmonton. Yeah. It's so, it's so weird, though, because, you know, I, I, in my mind, I'm like, oh, just go to Vancouver and play with those guys. Yeah. It's like, well, it's like 15 hours or so, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's a long drive, yeah. And, like, there, there's cheap flights there. Uh, and, you know, you, you get what you pay for on a cheap flight. Um, exactly. I, I was all set up to go to his tournament in, was it November? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you're Canadian. Yeah. But. You're in Vancouver, so I don't know. You guys don't. You guys don't. Do you guys get the snow that they get in Edmonton? Oh no, because that's like way. It's much farther north. See, right? he, he lives in Canada. I live in Vancouver. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. he was telling me Edmonton is the 
north northernest big big city that's in the world probably true yeah. and it gets i mean he was telling me how much snow they get I'm like, oh crap it's, it's a lot yeah and like you know they they sort of make up for it by the, their summer is like truly beautiful clear skies right sunny. Uh, no, I was also to go, and then I had. Uh, it makes sense. I, I had a little too strong a case of the sniffles as the flight was approaching, uh, so I, 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 I bailed. That's, but. Yeah, that's okay. But I mean, it's nice that there are pockets growing. We just got to keep them sure, going. Yeah. It's, it's it's sometimes hard. It feels hard, a little depressing. You're like, oh, it doesn't feel like we're moving yeah. forward. But I mean, we're a niche and a niche and a niche. Exactly. Exactly. That doesn't devalue the the greatness of the game and the, the awesomeness of the community. Just I've, small. I've been thinking more about that sort of relationship between the game and the models and the community. Um, like I, I'm, I'm a Pathfinder in Vancouver, so if, yeah. if you happen to be in the Vancouver area, uh, please hit me up. I would, I would love to meet you. It's an interesting time. Yeah. It's really c- kind of like a, a critical milestone, right? Like it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a turning point for the game. Well, and, and like you know, I come from it from a history of playing all sorts of different war games. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got a closet full of miniatures. Like my, my Trident Realm army is old uh, Wrath of Kings stuff that I got on miniature market clearance when ninety percent off. Exactly. So my, right. you know, I got. Just an absolute pile of plastic for like a hundred dollars. You know, there's only so much, so many of us old heads, you know, with a bunch of minis that want to just get them on the table. So to to get somebody fresh into the game, like you sort of need a a product and a some level of consistency to expect. Um, Sometimes a little bit of freedom is too much freedom. I feel so. You know, speaking my mind, I mean, it's definitely a topic that warrants a whole show. I think because it's just like. You know, the figure agnostic thing was great to get people to the table, but now they're here. I, I don't know that if we 100% buy into that still, it's yeah. going to sustain us long term. Exactly. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You got to keep you got to yeah. keep feeding the machine so that you get yeah. the models and you get the game and you get the. Yeah. yeah. So. yeah well, my, my Magic Night Stalkers arrived about three days before the tournament while I was still deep in. Uh, they're so good. In prep. And yeah, they're, <clears> they're the new butchers good. and the new uh, Reaper models. I mean, they're all the new hard plastics yeah. they've been pumping out have been great. And the the uh, the first hobby deadline for that Blackjack Legacy slow absolutely is, is uh, Friday, so I gotta I gotta keep up this momentum. Gotta, gotta keep up the momentum, and not slack off. So, yeah, lo- looking forward to getting that. On the awesome. What's next for you for tournament wise? What do you got? Uh, you next for, for me is um, Vic City Slam. I think it's called. It's, and it's uh, in Victoria. It, it's a two day. I like that Vix. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, uh, and you know. Um, uh, Paul, Paul yes. Forbes, right? Yeah. Yes, Paul yeah, Forbes he, from, he, from the Victoria War Game. Yeah, yeah exactly. VWG. Um, that is August 16th or something. That's so awesome. About a month. Yep. Uh, yeah, hop over for that. Should be a good time. And then after that is, uh, I think, Bothell Brawl in September. Oh, man. We got to get Brindley Smith back. Is he back in your area now? So he's he's on the island. Okay. Um, and I, I've never met him. because You've never met him? He's He was big before I was in the Oh, country. so he was a has-been. He, he is a has-been Basically. Now. Well, and he was he was back east in Ontario, I think, for a couple of years. I think, yeah, Montreal. So, I think so, it was, yeah. yeah they're, back, they're back on the coast now and sort of poking their heads out. It's uh, I think Ashley works weird shifts. And okay. They keep overlapping with where the tournament would be. Oh. Um, so they, they haven't made it out yet. Well, fingers crossed. I, I think they're they're working on re-emerging. So that awesome. that would be great. Luke, uh, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. And I can't wait to hear 6-0 and at the end of the day. New U.S. match. I mean, US you, you, you would, you would, that, it would <laughs> this place would fall apart it if, would, if, if Trident Realms, yep. you know, and no, I mean, a Pacific Northwest person. I also think it's great that Pacific Northwest, you guys have a full team. 
We've come a long way. With a bench. With a bench. We had two drops, and we still have one guy. That's what I'm saying. Like, when we Uh, started in Nashville back in 2017, I think there was one or two people. And it was like, so it's come a long way. Yeah, Yeah. really exciting to have that sort of depth of the the Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, buddy. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Shout out to my boy, Scott Keats, Countercharge Superfan number one. (laughs) Thanks, man. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. And we are back. So, I mean, that's probably cool to be able to hear, you know, yourself, Luke, thinking about that day of, you know, everyone says hindsight is twenty twenty. Is there any insights you had maybe over your first day that you didn't have that morning of day two that you sort of come to now? You know, it's like, to some extent, I feel a little like I sort of preyed on some off meta lists with my off off meta list. Um, like, you know, sort of melee skew goblins, shooting salamanders, Orcs. These these are not the the usual terrors, but they all ask really interesting questions. Unfortunately, they are questions that Trident Realm answers pretty well. So yeah, I I almost feel a little bit bad for like squashing the diversity of lists, but uh, I, I I soothe myself with my big award. Well, and I do love that. Uh, I like how you present the idea that Kings of War is a dance of questions. That you present a question to your opponent, and then in your turn. I'm trying to solve your question and present to you now a question that you now have to solve. And then it's this elegant, like back and forth, especially I have found at the highest levels, right? Where, um, the questions are more nuanced, more intricate, mm-hmm. and they, you know, people present you with a question that you think you know right away, but then you see off in the wings, you know, it, it's that, uh, bait and switch and all that sort of stuff. So I think that is true, uh, is how do I present my opponent with a, no good options for sure yeah, yeah yeah you know that's the dream question to ask ask the question that there is no answer to and man that is that is trident realm gameplay baked down to its its simplest right it's like you're you're free to charge any one of my six six units uh but they all suck yeah everything's in snare in snare in terrain or it's all these characters and you don't know what anything does and you no one ever plays trident <laughs> oh realms God. anyway yeah so you're playing against an army that you never play against in the first place you don't know what any of it's called you're like what is that fool <laughs> mythic mythoth or, or you know yeah. aqualung mate you know? i definitely had a couple times where my opponent said wait that's defense six yes because no one knows what any of it does. And the one sort of Trident Realm list that we did have in the wider meta when Jeff Swan was playing more, that was more like depth, depth, you know, uh, depth, uh, horrors. depth horrors, you know, it's, and it was yeah. very different, different from your list. But um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, take us I, through. I, I love depth horrors, don't get me wrong, but they, they don't react well to shooting at all. Yeah. And uh, especially like looking at your list, like that. I know you mentioned on it, but I, I just have to comment that when you have a, a giant that's defense five and ensnare, I mean, that's pretty. And, and iron resolve. And like, it's only 16, ah, 18. So and it has no waiver mitigation, but for 215 points, like, isn't that base giant 225? You're telling me you're going to move that with less than five, 600 points, a, a three to one ratio you have to put probably to kill that unit. And it's usually charging 15 inches. So it can just pick the best fight for it and go into it and grind something down. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, we heard about before the break, we heard about your your first three games. Now sort of the same thing. Take us through your last three games, you know, who you played, some highlights from that game or anything games that, or anything that stood out to you. So uh, game four was against Marcelo Rocco, who was playing Green Lady. Uh, the scenario was Invade. Of course, I knew this matchup at the end of day three, so I had some time to think about it. And he was playing a really alpha strikey Green Lady list. It had uh, three hordes of um, Order of the Forsaken, that's the Flying Knights, 
two regiments of Order of Redemption. Those are the super elite cavalry. Two regiments of Nyad Heartpacers, just to keep everybody honest with a bit of shooting. And then three Pegasus, the, the monster version, that uh, Great Chaff, and two Unicorns with Lenny Molt 5. Um, and I did not feel good about this matchup, because is just enough shooting to control my chaff, so I can't I can't be cavalier with my title swarm. And like even like his order of redemption, the super elite cavalry, they're melee three with twenty attacks. He gave one of them elite and one of them sharpness. So like he didn't overinvest into crushing strength, which is my favorite thing to see. Like um, uh, at Bay of, King, Bay of Kings, I played uh, Kyle Timberlake, who of course is absolutely lovely, um, and he had. The Horde of Elohai with the Brew of Strength and the Defense 4 swap. So they were crushing Strength 3, uh, which is what I absolutely want to see, because most of my stuff is Defense 3. So all of that crushing Strength was wasted. Uh, no, Marcelo focused on accuracy stuff. So, like, you know, I, I crunched the numbers, because the with Ensnare, the average hits is so crucial to understand. Like, until you've played Trident Realm a bit, you just don't have... The, the gut feeling for how lethal things are into which targets. Um, so I crunched the numbers, and my determination was that uh, his Alpha Strike was going to absolutely brutalize me. Um, so I was I was pretty sure that my Reign of Terror was over, game four. Um, invade isn't too bad. I mean, I, I think it plays to his strengths a little more than mine, um, because, you know, he's, he's an Alpha Strike list, so he's, he wants to get across the table anyway. But I, I, I move up pretty aggressively in basically every game, so I wasn't too worried about that. And then he won uh, the role for tableside, and I felt much better about his tableside. It had a forest just out of the deployment zone, so a nice defensive spot for Thule to sit in to be much less assailable by his Alpha Strike list. So he took the good side. Um, so I deployed thinking going first was maybe my only shot. So I really wanted to pressure that forest specifically and cower on the about half of the board um, to try to minimize or, or um, favor my narrower frontages. Because with, with three three hordes of large cavalry, he's got a fairly fat army, right? It can't it can't compact as well as mine. But then he won the roll for first turn, and he managed, like he occupied that forest with he 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 deployed differently than I expected, and it it helped me. Uh, not get absolutely swamped as far as I'm concerned. He puts himself on the far flank that, that had to come around into the into the fight. So he sort of sort of surrounded me on on uh, three sides, if you want. No, two sides, two sides, sort of like front and flank. So my my game plan was to just push as hard as I could on the right to take that flank and then sort of turn in, and it sort of worked. So th- this was this was a uh, draw. Ended up ten ten. Um, there were, I think, 60 points of attrition difference. He killed slightly more of my army than I did of his. So it's like the 10-10 the in this draw that you ever did see. And like there were there were some TSN turning points. I didn't do a good enough job controlling his fast stuff on the left flank, so I like really had to turn that stuff too far, and I just barely had enough chaff pieces to control his strikers in the middle from just like <laughs> wiping me off the table. It was, I was like gasping for air the entire game. And although he got tableside and first turn, my dice during the game were better. So I got, I got you know, things just barely surviving. Um, I think I got one or two lucky waivers. Yeah, and then throughout the course of the game, some coin flips that I needed to go my way went my way. So the, the dice just barely kept me in the game. 
Um, and we sort of did the, did the toilet bowl, and then he finally got a flank with Forsaken Knights into the into the flank of the Gigas unit that was on a, a hill in the dead center of the table. Um, so that picked them up, obviously, um, which really like cut off my battle line. It isolated the stuff on the left. I had like Coral Giant and Placoderms and the Depth Horror Eternal still over there. And so now they were surrounded. So we, like he turned to face that stuff, and meanwhile, like I was I was really struggling to take that forest on his side. Because uh, very cleverly, he just backed out of it, so I couldn't charge him. So I had to go into it, and then he got the charge. Uh, he didn't kill because um, he ensnares a really good rule. But yeah, it, it just I was sort of a, a turn late, pushing up on my right hand flank. But the the absolute saving grace was a battered Thule regiment, which had been chaffed by a unicorn, managed to withdraw and then get a rear charge over a hill onto Order of the Forsaken. Because uh, they're height four, so I could I could see him, um, and we had to we had to step through very carefully with the geometry, with the the withdraw and then pivot ninety degrees and then sort of pivot back a little bit, um, and it's really just because he chaffed me with that cavalry individual that I had enough leeway to pivot enough to get into the back there, so that picked that up of course, um, and that sort of balanced things out enough, and it ended up in a bloodbath. Like we each had six unit strength left all on the opponent's side of the board. And I had I had one final shot with Inisha, the, the Thule Mythican in the formation, um, to go into his Order of Redemption, who were sitting on five wounds to kill them. Because I was I was second, so this was sort of the, the last dice roll of the game. And I figure I had about a 15% chance of it. Like, you know, he was, he was wounded. I do an average of like four or five wounds, and they were inspired, so... Um, I, I had a chance, but it didn't go for it. So yeah, six, six unit strength to six unit strength. 10-10 tie. Yeah, we had Marcelo on the stream twice, Rob, and both his games were really fun to watch. So if you want to see like Alpha played at a high level, or you're curious how could how could Alpha survive in this shooting or this meta or whatever. It's a mean list. Yeah, those Forsaken hordes, like you said, they're they're big footprints. They're hard to uh you gotta really be good at managing them. And yeah, no, so he played his games were both uh uh, him on the stream were, were a pleasure to watch. So definitely go back and take a look at that if you play Alpha and want to see it done. Well, and he had the uh, Avatar of the Green Lady as well, and the um, Order of Redemption have Regen 5+. So that list grinds way better than it has any right to. Like an Alpha Strike, an alpha strike list that can go in, pick a couple units up, but then still like grind that well? Oh, breaks my heart. Yeah, those Redemption Knights are so berserk bonk, bonker yeah, balls. They're they, are, they are strong. And yeah, when I saw Sharpness on one of them, I was like, <laughs> the last thing I want to th- see is Melee 2+. plus. So you're you're 4 0 oh, and one right? I'm 4-0-1, oh, and so is everyone else. One interesting thing that we had this Masters is we had a couple of key rounds that a lot of players got draws. I think it was round four, three of the four top tables were draws. So there was only there was only one player at four and zero after round four, as I understand it. We were all like, as we were watching the um, the results, it was just super super fascinating. Very dramatic, yeah. Because or- ordinarily you draw round four and you think, okay, I'm not out of it, but things have to really go my way to get back on top. Whereas this, like, absolutely blew open the top standings. Like uh, it was Nathan Clevenger that was still four or that was four and zero. Oh. Um, but suddenly, three zero and one, and three one zero aren't that far apart. So all of those people that were on the table down, like, have a legit shot at it now. It was it was extremely cool. 
And I think I said four zero and one, but at this point you're three zero and one. Three zero and one. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Because I was thinking round four was the round that uh, we had a lot of those draws. Exactly. Okay. Well, awesome. So who did you end up playing in round five? Uh, round five, I was against my perennial opponent, Sean Polka. Uh, we've played a few times now uh, with just, you know, super, super tight games. Um, he is very smart and a lovely opponent. Sean and I get along great. And we played at Rose City with pretty similar lists. Uh, and it was a wild bloodbath. Um, so his his list is uh, three hordes of forest shamblers. Uh, two regiments of Hunters of the Wild, two Beasts of Nature without wings, specifically so that when they're disordered, they maintain nimble, two Greater Air Elementals, the Wilt Father, Druid with the Crown of the Wizard King on a forest steed with Heal and Surge, I think, Kapoka and Karis. Um, Karis is the one who has a shooting attack that disorders. It's eight attacks on four plus with no piercing, and if it damages, it disorders. Disordering shooting attacks are very good. Um, and Kapoka is the one who has the aura of phalanx for units with the verdant keyword, um, which is pretty good in our match because most of my hitting power comes from the thunderous charge off of the Thule. So that, that can really really keep his durability up high like that. Sean's really become one of those players, Rob, that if you come to a West tournament and you want to win and he's playing in it, you're going to play each other. You have to go through Sean. Yeah. You have to go through Sean, right? You're either going to draw him early in the match just because, or you're going to play him because he's going to be winning. So he's just sort of slotted into that role that he is one of those players that when we're going to an event in the West, he's going to be competing, competing for a top spot. Yeah. And he's, you know, like, the, the cleanest opponent you could ask for. He plays a tight game. He holds himself to a really high standard. I think round two, he forgot to move a greater rare elemental. And like I'd rolled, or some, some combats had happened. So there, there was new information. So it was, you know, it would have been a little bit time travel-y, but like not, not that much. And I said to him, like, is this the standard you're interested in maintaining at this time? And he said, yes, with absolute clarity. So I, I always respect a person who suffers from that level of clarity. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the, the game was dominate, and he deployed sort of left of center, uh, put all of his shamblers in the middle, um, and then had some sort of support pieces, the greater airs and the beast of nature off to the side. I did much the same. Um, there was a forest near my deployment zone on the left hand side that the formation goes into because it has pathfinder, um, and he left the right flank pretty alone. So I put the other regiment of Thule over there in the open. To sort of pressure the middle that way. Um, he scouted up not super aggressively, but took some board space. Um, and then I went first this time and pushed up pretty hard, as I so often do, um, avoiding uh, bad charges, like basically keeping my Thule safe and precious. Um, I disordered one of his greater heirs to drastically reduce its ability to impact the game. I moved a knucker up on the left-hand flank, sort of threatening the whole middle, and I actually charged with the Coral Giant and a Tidal Swarm that had scouted. Um, so I occupied his um, um, line of Forest Shamblers in the middle. Um, yeah, and then he, like it, it was on bottom or top of one, really. So we did some counter engagements and moved up. You know, you, you can't really remove my stuff in one turn. He, he did get one the Tidal Swarm that went in. He picked it up. But uh, yeah, like that, that created the opening for my, my second wave, my more offensive stuff to go in. And regrettably, between forgetting to move the greater air elemental, which was disordered, so its options were a little bit limited, between that and he missed a flank 
from Gigas, which was only possible because of Nimble. Um, like it, it wasn't a corkscrew. They weren't engaged, but they had the arc. They had the line of sight. So I sort of scooted them over and it, it repositioned them weirdly far as well because they sort of went from like left of center over to right of center. Um, and then I took his Hunters of the Wild on the right-hand side that were almost the only thing over there. He had a piece of nature, um, but the Trident Centurion tied it up. Um, and then my, my dice rolls were hogwash. Um, the, the piece of nature and the Night Centurion fought back and forth for like three or four turns. Uh, two turns in a row, I regenerated four out of four wounds. So he just like, he could not make any progress on that individual. Oh, that's just soul crushing. And I know Sean so well. I know his face. We're just like looking at you, just be like, oh, just so soul crushing. So eventually I wavered it and then I killed it. I I 1v1 the piece of nature with uh, an individual. Uh, So that that obviously is not uh, uh, statistically particularly probable, but uh, hey, it happened. Uh, so yeah, I, I really collapsed the right side of the sort of dominate circle hard um, and stalled the left enough to really consolidate my victory. Um, the Wiltfather always gives me fits because um, Trident Realm just doesn't hit that hard and Wiltfather is tough as nails. Um, so it it killed uh, the Coral Giant and the Regiment of Thule. Because um, I, I sort of just ignore the Wiltfather. It's going gonna, it's gonna to kill a bunch of stuff. I have to focus on getting unit strength off the board. The way the game went, I had enough of an advantage that I got to combo charge front end flank with Gigas, which was enough to take it down. Because crush two vicious in the flank is pretty pretty good. So um, yeah, I, I had the center. Um, he won on the left side. Like I had a a knucker and some placoderms stalling up over there against a piece of nature and um, hundreds of the wild regiment. Uh, he won that side. The placoderms really they they really feel committed to. Um, cementing their role as a defensive unit because whenever I use them, they roll terribly. Like my, my, my dice luck overall is pretty good. My placoderm luck. But yeah, I mean, at that point, he was like fighting way uphill. But I mean, if that's the unit you're going to have bad dice rolls with, I mean, exactly, I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's the one you want to have. Yeah, so I, it ended up, uh, I think, about 10 0 on, on scenario. He, like, he had some unit strength left. Um, but he couldn't really charge it in because he had no good charges. So he tried to bait me out of the the circle, but I I didn't take it. So yeah, that was uh, that was a big win. I had a fair um, attrition lead and a, a huge scenario lead that bumped me back up. Going into game six, what we had is you and Nate were tied, right? Tied exactly. Tied in yeah, points, so and then even we had though Mar- he was five zero and I was four zero and one. Yeah, so that shows right that 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 last win was a big one, and then yeah, we had um, for sure. Marcelo and Jeff Radigan on table two, and we had them eight points behind you guys. So did that you? Nate, right, yeah. Yeah. So did you sort of have that in your head? Did you know? Okay, this is it. This is going to decide Masters who wins this game. I was blessedly um, putting the title out of my head almost the entire tournament. Um, I I was feeling extremely good about my performance, um, just the the way the weekend had gone, but I was also so exhausted like jeremy literally i was the wettest man alive (laughs) twice in two games my face sweated so much that the filter on my mask absorbed enough sweat that it was hard to breathe like i i really cannot overstate the absolute dripping stress the 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 flop sweat i was experiencing um so there, there was i had absolutely no bandwidth for like 
strategizing on how to come out top. I just had to face my opponents. So you were just, I'm going to play my game. I'm just going to play the army the best I can. I'm not going to worry about who's on what points and who's below me. Just just win, beat the opponent that's in front of me. Tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what, what helped a little bit with that is the streaming room was in the library of the school, which is like a city block away from the gymnasium. It's a bit of a hike. It's a ways away. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't, my, my team wasn't there gassing me up. I, we were, we were in solitude, uh, just, just facing each other off. So that, that, that sort of helped keep the, the overall event pressure from getting to me, I think. And then you played, uh, Nathan, right? The, the final was Nathan Clevenger, um, who, as I understand it, was also in the final against Adam Ballard last year. And just a shout out to Nathan to go top table and two back-to-back masters. That's almost more impressive than winning a masters to show consistency like <laughs> yeah, that. You know between, what? The, the consistency, two yeah. events. If we, if we take the average score uh, this year and last year, he smokes me. So, um, yeah, he was playing Night Stalkers, uh, which I think he plays a fair bit. Uh, certainly he knew what everything did. Uh, and the scenario was Salt the Earth, uh, which felt a little cruel to have a scenario as thinky as Salt the Earth on round six. Yeah, his list was two Bloodworm Legions, one with the Hammer of Measured Force, one with uh, Vicious, no, Elite, I think. Two Hordes of Fiends, one with Speed, one with Brute Strength, uh, two Troops of Phantoms, uh, three Mind Screeches, one Planar Apparition, um, a Regiment of Shadowhounds with Sharpness, and that might be it. Oh, and then a horror, and that might be it. So, you know, so his his uh, his main fighting forces were those two uh, legions of bloodworms and the two hordes of fiends. Um, canny listeners will know those are all melee four. So um, we're off to a good start because melee four gets punished pretty hard by ensnare. His deployment caught me a tiny bit off guard in that I was really afraid that he was going to stack one side and he sort of deployed in a sensible like uh, I think a pretty practiced way where he's got the, the blood worm sort of central where they must be relevant because they will just march forward in the center of the table and then each flank had a horde of fiends and a troop of phantoms um, and then the shadow hounds were sort of like middle-ish off to the right and the the uh, mind screeches were sort of floating around to support. So this was Salt the Earth. Um, oh, and he did something weird, um, which I never do for exactly this reason. Um, he deployed tokens basically only on one side of the board. Um, so there was only one token on what ended up being his table edge. Because I, I won the roll for, for table edge. So I took the one with all the tokens on it. Um, so by deploying the tokens sort of unequally like that, you really uh, expose yourself to the potential weakness of losing the losing side. Um, and it could be that he figured the terrain setup was better on the other side. So it was actually a balancing act. Um, but yeah, I mean, having, having all but one of the tokens on my side, definitely, definitely probably helped, you know, it's tough to say the game was all over the place, but uh, yeah, but then he won first turn. Uh, he moved up sort of, not not super aggressively, but positioned a little bit, um, and I I responded by moving up really aggressively, almost as aggressively as possible. Uh, he wavered one of my Thule regiments uh, with lightning on the top of one, 
which is never what I want to see. He did six damage, which is basically average, uh, with two mind screeches and wavered it. And then the flanks, I moved both knockers up really aggressively. Um, one to burn a token. Uh, and doing so exposed it to a charge from phantoms and or fiends. Um, but I sort of covered it with gigas and a coral giant so that if he went into the knucker or the gigas, I would have something else to, to counter charge and hopefully, um, tip that fight in my favor. Um, because the, the tokens were more clustered on the middle left. Uh, there was only one on the right and he had more stuff on the right. So I was like, okay, that token must go. Um, so I did that turn one. Um, yeah, positioned pretty aggressively on the left, um, just unafraid of his fiends. They're melee four. So into um, ensnare stuff, they do an average of like 7.7 wounds or something, uh, which is likely a waiver, but not likely a kill. So I'm happy to take that charge every day. Um, and then, of course, the um, placoderms just love seeing um, cavalry and large cavalry. So, um, yeah, I because of his force composition... I didn't really have to be fearful of anything but the shooting. So I, I needed to to be aggressive is what it comes down to. So I've got I've got some notes here. Let me see here. Um, right. So then on the sort of turn with the engagement, rather than sort of chaffing up and freezing my line, as I sort of expected, he flew his phantoms over me um, to get them in behind my stuff, um, which did make the initial contact simpler. Um, for me, but then there were phantoms behind me that really plagued me all game. Um, I had, I really struggled to control them to keep them from picking up valuable stuff. Um, he went into the right hand knucker with his fiends and wavered it. Um, and he, he did a really cool thing with wind blast. He pushed my coral giant with two different mind screeches, um, backwards and then to the side because it was pretty near a building. So he pushed me enough that it was behind a building. So it would have needed nimble to charge around it. So I couldn't support the knucker that he charged over on that side. We're now calling that the Clevenger maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> he had the ultimate end of game push Marcelo's unit out of the dominate circle with wind blast. Like it was just like Cinderella yeah. story out of nowhere. Just amazing move. Wind blast, man. I, I rewatched the stream. That was, that was fantastic. Unfortunately, he um, didn't check um, the Thule that he wavered turn one, uh, their threat range. And he left, because one of his Bloodworm units sort of went um, rightward to sort of get around the forest. And he left it within 16 inches and in their flank. And he had to use his Mind Screeches to push the Coral Giant to protect the Fiends over there. So there was no more shooting pressure to waver them again. Um, so we check it. It's within 16, so I need a 3 on my wild charge and the aura. Uh, and lo and behold, I roll it, uh, and my Pathfinder Thule go to the flank of his Bloodworms. Um, and ironically, uh, the Coral Giant also had a charge on those Bloodworms, because although he pushed them in behind the, or he pushed the Coral Giant in behind the building there, it still had arc over to where he moved the Bloodworms. So I did a triple charge with the Mythican Hero, the Thule Regiment in the flank, and the Coral Giant in the front. And I picked up those bloodworms, um, so that was that was huge. Like I, I blew a hole in his line, bottom of turn two. Yeah, that was a big combat, right? That was a really important combat. Yeah, it, it was it was huge, and like that that loss of that unit really uh, put me in the driver's seat. And then the game was really really messy from there. Like on the left hand side, the fiends horde went into um, a thule regiment up there. I uh, didn't kill them. I don't even think I wavered them. Um, so I collapsed on it with a, like a quadruple charge from the stuff that was over there. 
Um, I sent one Thule regiment into the second um, Bloodworm Horror Legion uh, with Barkskin on it. Um, it was and it was the Bloodworms with the Hammer of Measured Force. So he's actually wounding my defense three on fours again. Like talk about a bad matchup. Um, so that Bloodworm Legion does an average of I think eight wounds to an ensnare unit. And I think I rolled a five Barkskin successes. Um, so like just stops it in its tracks with one 170 point regiment. Um, yeah. And then, so because I had his unit strength, at least on the middle and left, like pretty well dealt with, um, it was really the mind screeches and the phantoms, which are now behind me that I was like really struggling to stay on top of. And that, that role came down to, um, the Thule Mythican hero to some extent, uh, the Naiad Centurion with the Disorder Staff, or um, Trident, and the, one of the regiments of Tidal Swarm, just like desperately trying to stay a step ahead. Um, and after I killed the Fiend was on the left-hand side, I had to face the Thule and the Depth Horror Eternal, sort of um, one to the right and one to the back, to cover that, um, that Phantom Troop, because otherwise it would have just gotten sort of like free rear charges and traded way up, and I, I can't accept that. Um, yeah, let's see here. So on the right-hand side, um, I, I made a pretty big mistake. I backed up the knucker and charged in to the fiends with the gigas that were supporting over there, but I did it in the, I on purpose did it in the wrong order. Um, so I charged the gigas first and then backed up the knucker, um, not seeming to realize that that meant the fiends could counter charge into my flank. Well, a fresh charge, uh, because their leader point was, off of my of my base by that 25 millimeters um so i gave him that for free and it didn't even protect the knucker like if i'd if i'd moved the knucker back first and then gone in with the gigas which i think because of nimble i could have done um it would have protected the knucker and not gotten me flank so that was that was a big mistake and what you're describing there i think is a good little strategy point um because this is something i think some players don't realize or when once they see it for the first time uh, i what luke's describing here is you don't always have to issue a counter charge. Exactly, so if you charge yes. me and you're attacking me in the front, but for whatever reason, you're off to a side because of another unit or whatever. And now my leader point is in your flank. I don't have to counter charge your front. I can just issue a flank charge. So always think, think about what the, the response your opponent has, right? Um, yeah. So of course, um, having blown up the Bloodworm Legion on the right, um, my Coral Giant was free to turn back towards the other stuff on the right-hand flank. Um, so Nathan very cleverly um, chaffed it up with a Mind Screech. Unfortunately, the giant just wasn't feeling very hungry because uh, it didn't even waver the Mind Screech. Uh, it did like six wounds or something. Just a, a pathetic performance. Um, so the Mind Screech just walked away, and then the fiends went into the giant. And I believe they wavered it one turn and killed it the next. Um, so my, my right-hand side completely evaporated. I was feeling extremely validated in burning that one token. Because um, yeah, I, I vanished from that side of the board. It took me a while to clean up the left-hand Bloodworm Legion because um, the Thule regiment that I sent in, um, I felt extremely good about the math, but just, I think he did a total of twelve damage, um, which put it at seven after the Barkskin, and then he rolled the waiver. Um, so I couldn't combo charge with it. I had to back up to, to make room, uh, but then I could, I could only back up the. You know, withdraw the one and back up the three, which is four inches, which is like the same depth as the Placoderm regiment, which went in. So that Thule regiment 
uh, could only reform like basically 180 degrees. Um, so I got, I got really jammed up on my own stuff over there while I was still fighting that Bloodworm reg- uh, Legion. And it took a couple of turns to go down. Cause you know, it's, it's a lot of nerve basically until I got the final regiment of Thule into it. I, I couldn't pick it up. So that, that took a couple turns. So at that point I have almost total control of the left hand flank. Uh, he put a, um, planar apparition into my Kigas and planar apparitions have ensnare. And Gigas only have 12 attacks. Planar Apparitions also have uh, Regeneration 4+. So it stalled those Gigas for, I think, three turns until the Thule, which had been wavered by the Bloodworm Legion, turned around and got it in the back, uh, just in the nick of time, because um, one of the Phantom troops finally could no longer jockey for position and had to just go into that Gigas flank and hope for a miracle. Um, so the Gigas countercharged them and cleaned them up. Um, yeah, so at that point we were getting into turns five and six, um, and it sort of came down, like a bunch of my units were pretty battered, so I had to start going for, you know, objectives, because to pick up the, those bloodworms, they were pretty far from the points. So I started making my way back, um, and he's using lightning bolt to pick off vulnerable units that are in scoring positions, and I'm just barely fending off the lightning with Barkskin and the disorder attack, um, just, you know, trying desperately to keep my stuff alive. Um, so that I can score. And then on turn six, I think it was, I, I had sent the placoderms over to get the one token that was in his deployment zone, as much to get them out of the way as, as anything. Just like, okay, I, I need a line of sight. You go that away. I left them in arc of the fiends, which had just killed the coral giant, uh, and in charge range with a rear charge. Um, so we took the, he took the charge on the placoderms, which I did the math later, and it turns out they only average like 12 damage on that because they're hitting on fours and they're only crush ones. They're wounding on fives. So even with 72 attacks, uh, it wasn't a sure thing. I mean, he got it. Like it's, it's quite likely that it kills. Uh, but that's one of those things where uh, a slightly under uh, damage roll. Oh, and they're vicious. So I, it's probably more like 14 average damage. Um, but anyway, it was, there, there was a chance that the placoderm survived, but they didn't. Um, so I chaffed the fiends with uh, the Thule Mythican hero from the formation the fiends, of course, failed to kill the ensnare defense six units in return. Um, so at the end of turn six, we were, I think it was four to one in my favor. Um, he had a, a battered mind screech on one token, and then I had the center and three other uh, objectives. We rolled a seven, um, so he had, he had a chance to get back in it. Managed to shoot off one of the Thule regiments that was sitting on a point. The fiend horde couldn't kill... Um, the, the, the Mythican, of course, the, the, it's such an uphill battle at that point. And that was, that was about it. Um, and then my seven, I basically, you know, I, I killed the Fiend Horde because it was already, it already taken some damage. Um, and I had a, a regiment of Thule there. Um, and then I tried like hell to shoot off the, um, the Mind Screech that was on that, on his one point. And it was funny. Uh, my, my Centurion was getting a dead consistent one damage to whatever it shot at all game. And I think it averages, like 2.5 because it's going to be hitting on fours with stealthy uh, and then wounding on threes because Pearson one. Um, so I was rolling under the average, but I was getting the one I needed. So just like dead consistency for, for disordering the stuff. Cause that was really what kept me in the game. Like, you know, controlling mind screeches and taking the fly off of phantoms to keep it from getting crucial charges on the, the Thule, which would pick them up and, 
I, I don't have enough unit strength to afford to lose any, basically. Yeah, so that was it. Uh, turn seven, it was three to one for me. When did you get the big sigh of relief? After turn five, I was starting to feel pretty good because of my, my sort of scenario presence, and he was far away from the tokens. Um, and then, honestly, when he took the rear on the placoderms, they weren't near any objectives. I, I was like, oh, I didn't see that. So it was a mistake, but it was like the best possible mistake. Because I, I like, I don't know whether he got blinded by the prospect of that rear charge, or like it, any other charge would have been hindered. And hindered and snare means they're hitting on sixes, so they're doing nothing. So like, you know, he didn't have good options. Um, but that almost felt like a decoy move from a smarter person than me. But yeah, at, I survived his last little bit of lightning, and uh, there we were. Was there a point where it hit you that you realized, oh, I'm going to be the next? U.S. Master? I basically refused to engage with those thoughts until it was announced. Now, part of it is the, the scoring software was not producing good results throughout the weekend. Um, so there was a part of me that just didn't didn't trust the numbers. And like obviously, the, the top tables are going to have the most scrutiny. So I knew that there was a pretty good chance that my my and my next like the next people, several people down score was accurate. Um, and if it was, then like. I think a 14-7 for me and a 21-0 for the next person down, it still wouldn't have been enough to catch me. So I think like any win meant that I was safely in first. But I just, I was so tired, Rob. I was so tired. <laughs> just absolutely mentally exhausted. Well, and that's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation now rather than Sunday night. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let you catch your breath a little bit. But yeah, so congratulations on the big win. That's, Thank you. That's an amazing Thank accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should mention, Second battle was Jeff Shulkin, who is a tremendous player with those ogres, and then he uh, he beat the boogeyman Jeff Redigan. And then obviously your opponent in round six was third battle, Nathan Clevenger. He's the new Travis Tim. He's right there. So it's just a matter of time before he flips over. Yeah, some some jerk had to bring in snare to the tournament, eh? You may have started a whole movement. <laughs> well, Trident Realms have been kind of under the radar. It's not unlike you know when Keith Conroy run it. I mean, there was there was a sense that hey, maybe we should look at this army again. It must be said, any big event with you know a, a sufficient volume of good, strong players, you need things to go your way to come out on top. And I think probably that's especially true of Trident Realm. I don't, I don't honestly know how my matchup like dwarfs are probably a pretty tough matchup not terrible and it really depends on the specific flavor of dwarfs and i'm i'm less vulnerable to shooting than the last time i played against um, ryan munsell's dwarves um so i don't really know what my my odds are there but shooting volume in general the scorchwing list probably would have been a real problem for me because even with stealthy fives and threes that Damage still gets through. Plenty of damage still gets through. You know, if if we ran the same tournament with the same people five more times, how many additional times would I come out on top? Probably zero, right? Like it, it really has to be like I, I threaded the needle on the matchups and the meta. Honestly, that's required to win any big event. It is. It is. And, and you know, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to discredit my opponents. Like I, I played my absolute hardest. You know, I, I feel good about my performance there. Like it's not as though they gave me easy, easy wins. That's once again the wettest man alive. Yeah, the, the, the combination of factors sort of gave me the opportunity. If you want. Well, we've got some questions from the audience. Dave Fanning asks, "Was there anyone you really wanted to play?" I mean, I would love to see the Scorchwing list in action. Um, I expect it would be quite painful. Um, but the truth is, beyond my first round matchup, I didn't, I didn't 
look at the list that closely. Like, you know, um, Tom Annis put together sort of a, a little spreadsheet showing um, the faction breakdown. So I was very interested in that. But the specific lists, not, you know, I didn't, I didn't expect to win. So I wasn't paying that much attention. You know, I sort of figured I'd, I'd see on the day. Um, but in terms of, you know, like just wanting to, to see the boogeyman in action. Yeah, the, the Scorchwing list would have been very interesting. Yeah, I mean, he still had a heck of a showing, and he ended up winning Paragon, and yeah, it, it, it's it's a strong list. How important were the scenarios, in your opinion? That's an interesting question. The very boring answer is that scenario is always extremely important, because if you get greedy and distracted, uh, you will lose, even if you are killing more. It turns out that not every scenario is kill, even though sometimes every scenario is kill. But specifically, I didn't feel them that much, you know, um, like because I play very aggressively, um, there aren't well, because I play very aggressively and have a lot of quick utility pieces. There aren't really that many scenarios that, that penalize me. Push can be tricky, but I've got the placoderms to carry the token. So, yeah, I mean, like I, I feel pretty good about scenario play in general. So I, I don't think it was a huge factor. Well, let's go to uh, Donnie Kroos, who asks, what was the biggest tactical moment of the GT that went in your favor? Tactically speaking, so ignoring dice, it probably was that rear charge onto Marcelo's Order of the Forsaken. Um, like, it was just barely there, right? Uh, I, needed, I needed the withdraw. It was only because the chaffing unit was so narrow that I got it. And also, it was over a hill, so it was only because he was height four. Um, and it really... Um, clawed me back from a crushing defeat to a tie. Um, so that was that was the, 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 the TSN turning point for sure. So Donnie also asked, was there a single dice roll that went poorly for you or great for your opponent that made you go, oh crap, that changes everything? Like I'm, I'm fixating on this game because it was, it was that one tie, but um, when Marcelo won first turn, I had a real sinking feeling in my stomach. If I go first in that game, I have a much better idea of how to play it, I guess. Like, you, you know, um, but how it, how it specifically goes on the table, it's basically impossible to say, but I really had a, had a game plan for going first. So when he got that, it just like, okay, we're back to the drawing board. We got to do our best here. Let's, let's hold on to some points. Well, Felix, one of the newest RC members asks, how can we buff Trident Realms when clearly they're overpowered now? Yeah. I mean, uh, I have long been a proponent of, good internal balance in the faction. Um, like I have been talking in the Trident Realm Facebook group about nerfing the formation and Coral Giants for a while, uh, you know, in exchange for improving some other pieces, because I don't really like mandatory stuff. Like, you know, the formation is one thing because you can only take it once, uh, but like Thule are in a good place. And part of that is, is the meta. So if we're going to buff Trident Realm, which, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to, maybe it doesn't need to be a priority. Then, it really should come at the expense of bringing some of the really powerful pieces, which are just like over the curve for sure. Like the fulfill formation, coral giants, maybe knuckers, but then like Trident Realm is a weird faction anyway. So being like having really distinct strengths and also like Trident Realm has no true hammer unit, uh, which I've always loved that sort of element of its design where you just have to, do you know the uh, the far side comic cow tools? Yeah, cow tools really makes me think of Trident Realm, right? Like you've got these just bizarre pile of stuff, and you got to make it work somehow. And that 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 process is uh, really really rewarding. <laughs> Adam Ballard has a comment which says, uh, "Why did you have to go and one up me 
by winning with Shrine at Realms. Does feel like a, a nice, stylish bit of panache, doesn't it? Looking back, what do you attribute the great run to? Is there any one thing you would point to and say, this was the most helpful thing in my run? Yeah, I mean, it's it's matchups, right? And as part of that is taking advantage of people's unfamiliarity with Trident Realm, sort of particularly in my hardest games, game four and six against Marcelo and Nathan. You know, they just didn't have the reps against the army and like didn't really know the stat lines that well. Like at one point, um, Marcelo gets a flank against Placoderms. I can't honestly remember if it killed them, but he was shocked that they were just flat defense six, not not big shield. So just like, it's such a weird army with a weird combination of special rules and the way that that skews the math away from from normal expectations. Because you know, like when you're when you're tired and really playing hard, you need to, or at least I do, need to rely on that sort of muscle memory and just familiarity with what everything does, what to expect. And just, you know, it's not quite instinct, but your your active brain function becomes less and less a part of the formula. Um, and Dryden Realm is sort of a different set of math. So if you if you don't have those expectations built up, you will get caught out and it will cost you. So over the course of the weekend, what were your standout units? It really does take the team to make everything shine. The individuals all really, really shine. Um, the the Naiad Centurion, it, the control it provides at range and uh, regardless of arcs. Like, you ever been in a situation where you've got an individual to protect against a dragon, but you can only charge the dragon in the flank, and then it just charges, like it's disordered, so it loses flying, but it just charges 20 anyway, because you're, you're no longer in its way, like you're, you're in its flank. Well, the Centurion can move at the double to be in its front, and then disorder it. Like, it turns off shooting, it turns off spell casting, it loses fly, it costs thunderous charge. It's just an over a 24-inch radius. Like, it it dominates the, the battlefield and prevents my opponent from, from leveraging, uh, you know, really the, the, sort of the strongest stuff against me. So it's huge. Um, the sheer hitting power provided by the Thule Mythican from the formation, like, it personally often did seven or eight damage you know that's that's a bit of a spike but it happened plenty and like for for an army that struggles to really seal the deal on damage that's big um but even like going into individuals going into spellcasters going into combo charges that's huge um and maybe the single biggest upgrade in the army is the wild charge one aura like it, it is truly shocking how often that one inch is the make i mean game six against nathan the, the the one inch to get that sixteen inch charge it's was absolutely massive, but just increasing your entire army's threat range by one inch is such an obnoxiously strong rule. Barkskin is huge when the Thule regiment gets down to like you know it's sitting on six or seven wounds. They're only fourteen sixteen, and they got no waiver mitigation. Um, that's at the point where any stray lightning bolt or like casual melee attack can easily pick it up, but. You barkskin it, and suddenly, like, it's not worth shooting anymore. So it really forces the opponent to spread their fire, which leaves all of my units half dead, which is exactly where I want them. Just spreading that damage out as much as possible. Everybody takes their one pop on the jaw, uh, and nobody goes down sort of thing. Other than that, like, the, you know, it's 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 different roles. Like, the, the Thule have to do the striking. The Gigas are unit strength and tough and occupy and fight. Um, the Knuckers are just, like 
crazy board presence and pressure. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to bring it down to any one unit because there's just so much, so much strong stuff. Paul Fuller Jackson does want to know about placoderms. How did your placoderms fare throughout the event? They, they were okay. Um, they were crucially immune to alpha strike in my game against Marcelo. Um, most other units, because I had them anchoring that far flank, a double charge could have just picked it up. Um, but placoderms simply cannot be alpha striked by virtually anything. Um, the unit strength four would have been really good in a couple games. So that's a, a solid upgrade if you've got it. Um, and then, you know, 15 attacks on fours, it's not, it's not nothing, right? Like they were part of a lot of combo charges. And even when they only do three or five damage, that's three or five more damage. So it all, it all adds up. Um, yeah, I think they're in a pretty good spot. I might, I might delicately advocate for two or zero. The, the one was, it was, it was solid, but so, sometimes I wish that I had another. And sometimes I wish they were something else, but you know, they're also 160 points for an almost invincible unit strength three. So there, there's something there for sure. Considering the mix of high defense units and stealthy in the army was shooting actually a problem. And was the centurion enough to take the edge off? Um, a bit of both. Yeah. So I didn't face very much shooting. Thule, even with stealthy defense three is still extremely shootable. Like if, if you leave Thule out of cover and, of course, the formation gives Pathfinder, so I try not to. Um, but if, if Thule don't have cover and there's any volume of shooting going into them, two Phoenixes or a couple regiments of Glade Stalkers or even Sharpshooters, right? Like the Pierce 2 is sort of wasted, but like the damage adds up quick. And Thule are quite tough if they're fresh. Like, you know, they, they can take that one solid knock on the jaw. Um, but if they're sitting at four, five, seven wounds, they're so close to death. Like they basically need one of my games, the, the game against um, Keith Manak with the shooting salamanders. My Aquamage had to babysit the an injured Thule regiment for three full turns because if I did, if I stopped casting Barkskin on him, he could have shut them off like pretty trivially, and I needed that unit strength. So. Yeah, like if you're if you're struggling with Thule, um, keep in mind that although they are tough to pick up, they do not have staying power. So put damage on them, and it will count. If you knew then what you know now, is there anything in your list that you would have changed? Um, I've seen the butterfly effect, so no, I wouldn't dare. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to complain about the winning list. I would probably shuffle some items around, not because it's a good idea, but because I love to compulsively shuffle items around. Placoderms, hard to say. Um, actually, my coral giant is usually a star, and it was mostly just a block of nerve on, on the weekend. It, it got took a lot of abuse, and that was its role. So that's fine. But no, I mean, uh, don't. Don't mess with the winning formula. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you feel any different now that you are the 2023 U.S. Master? Yeah, I mean, like a, a little validated. Uh, last year, I was like, okay, uh, you know, mat matchup and game luck is, is a big element. But I, I felt I felt like I was better than 61st at Masters. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to let the 
um, just absolute arrogance of winning a big tournament go to my head. You know, I gotta let it go to my head a little bit. Um, I get I get to start every sentence with, well, as the reigning U.S. master. To, yeah, I I I fully understand um, that it, it doesn't happen every time, right? Like I I know that I'm not better than the best ten players at at Masters, right? Maybe on a good day, which this weekend had two good days, I can stand shoulder to shoulder with them. But like I'm 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 not the clear favorite in future Masters. Let's put it that way. So Brindley Smith asks, how do you feel about the sportsmanship and styles of play across the weekend, arguably the most competitive Kings of War event? Did you come out of it wanting to travel to more regional GTs? To the second point, did I come out of the tra- wanting to travel to more regional GTs? Um, not really, because I already had such a good experience at Bay of Kings last year, Brenton Williams' tournament in San Diego, that like my my hunger for cool tournaments abroad is is fully stoked as for the sort of style of play um something interesting that i've started to sort of develop a theory on is at masters the the like really really competitive players are some of the best sports um because like you know what sort of goes hand in hand with being really good at kings of war is understanding and accepting the role of dice in the game so when one of the, you know, like top five favored to win Masters players gets trounced by dice, they say, yeah, that'll happen. It's a dice game. Whereas worse players will sometimes blame their dice more directly. Like even if it is the dice's fault, like it's just kind of the way it goes, right? Like Kings is a game where, you know, skilled players win a lot, but it is absolutely a dice game there's a lot of dice rolling and you know double ones i i am not a double ones hater i'm not really a double ones lover but i overall approve of double ones because of the sort of impact they have on the 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 overall game experience and the ability for big memorable moments right like that's that's sort of worth the the reduction in raw representational outcome for me like moving away from that deterministic skill-based outcome a little variance is good. It, it creates excitement. Yeah. And like, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's enough skill required in the game where when you make mistakes, you will get punished by a better player. And if you make no mistakes, then you're doing really, really well. Can you, can you teach me about making no mistakes? That would be great. But yeah. So like in some respects, the more competitive the table, the, the chiller the vibe the the better the sportsmanship in some respects and like i gotta i gotta give a shout out to nathan here right towards the end of game six when we were both under like three minutes of clock uh my my the, the quality of my sport sportsmanship dipped a little bit I, w- I let the pressure get to me a little i wasn't i, wasn't, I don't think i was nasty but i was a little more stringent on uh technical correctness than mattered like you know there were so few pieces on the table that you know exact exact correctness just wasn't relevant i apologize to him for that but uh yeah whereas like to some extent last year i sort of got the feeling that people on bottom tables because they you know succeeded in their home regions they they felt like they weren't a quote bottom table player um so that that's sort of like almost a chip on the shoulder about you know where you belong in a tournament what what outcome is sort of acceptable. So weird long answer, but fundamentally it's very cool that Kings is 
broadly played in a in a very or or broadly enables very very respectful play. I think sort of my my core thesis there. Well articulated response. And we've talked about in that that in the past, right? Sort of the structure of kings and how it plays its DNA sort of leads us to the island of good sportsmanship, right? The ship is kind of heading that way, just like you said, around how... Yeah, I mean, if you've ever played uh, the board game Carcassonne, then like, it's not the same. This is a weird example, but it almost has that same element of like you're cooperating towards the goal of competition. Like it's, it's, it's about comparing battle strategies more than it is about executing them in some respects and like i'm i'm maybe the biggest stickler i know for tight play so if somebody tells me that i'm playing sloppy it's i'm gonna be heartbroken right um but i I really try to make all of my movements like exactly correct within within the possibilities and some people through sort of no fault of their own are just a little sloppier you know you're you're holding your tape measure a few inches off the table there's a bit of an angle you're eyeballing things a tiny bit when you're pivoting center points are drifting one way or the other and that, that grinds my gears a little bit, even when it doesn't matter. Yeah, I call that uh, Kings of War uh, center point drift. All of a sudden, you start pivoting and your unit's like floating around. I'm a little baby, so I really, really hate confrontation. So having to be like, hey, uh, that pivot looked a little... Can you mark your bases so that we can just stay on top of things? It's It's tough. And no one's perfect, you know. I try to play super clean as much as I can, but everyone, you're gonna you're gonna mess something up, or you know, you're gonna make a mistake. Yeah. the The best piece of advice I can offer, specifically for playing against me, if you're interested in sort of like a good sportsmanship vote, is like mark all of your units. If you want to move back at all, or like adjust your your movement, mark off its starting position, move forward, and just use that undo button. Right. But as far as I'm concerned. Both players sort of have a fundamental responsibility to maintain the correct board state. And we play with miniatures. We play on three-dimensional terrain. Things get bumped. It's it's really challenging to have like a, a computer. Per- like it's basically impossible to have a computer perfect game. But both players have a responsibility to maintain the, the, the best representation of the true board state as possible. Um, so, and that, that really starts with clean movements, with marking off your positions, with not, not touching pieces unless they're moving, basically. So that's, that's sort of where I stand. That's going to be my Kings of War memoir, Rob, precise board state, or what, what, what did you just say? <laughs> or whatever. Maintaining, bo- maintaining correct board state yeah. is going to be yeah. my memoir. But, um, well, correct. Congratulations, man. I th- it just, yeah, thank you. Congratulations to you. You know, like you said, so many things have to go right to to win a tournament like that. You got to play correctly. Dice got to go your way. You got to have good matchups. You know, it's not it's not an easy feat by any means. So, um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, brought one home for the old uh, West Coast. Whoop. Yeah, you know, we got we got a little bit going on over here, Robbo. <laughs> We're not a, a, a desolate desert. Well, you know the question that everybody wants to know, Luke. Were you able to get the sword home? The sword is currently somewhere in rural Oregon. You sent it home with the Brown Bag Boys. I did. The 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 dear brothers McClure and Blake uh, agreed to take it home. And then actually Russ, Russ Romano is heading down to Portland uh, this weekend. So it worked super well. I figured I'd have to wait until um, September for a Bothell Brawl to pick it up. But no, Russ, Russ was heading down there. So yeah, we looked at checking it into, uh, Ryan Munsell's luggage or his, his checked bag. And actually Adam 
Ballard offered to ship it to me, like at his expense. But this this was pretty convenient. So yeah, it's it'll it'll be it'll be uh, right behind me as a big old sword of Damocles hanging over my head. I figure gonna really reappraise my trophy wall needs after this win. It's always exciting when be somebody that came out of the woodwork and and sure, rose yeah. to the top and doing it with a different army, right? That people were not expecting. Yeah, I mean between the the round four ties, the Trident Realm win, and the number of like surprise flank and rear charges in the final i feel like we did our part for showmanship in kings of war there was just enough sloppiness to keep it spicy eh? yeah the games were crazy up until the very end it was like a super if you haven't watched the stream make sure you go and subscribe to matt carmack's youtube uh channel there's links for it everywhere but go take a look those last two rounds uh, where we're following all the top tables it was whoo super exciting stuff they were squeaky that's for sure Thanks so much for listening. Turns out the PNW is a pretty cool place. And remember, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.